It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. Welcome to the Coco Crew Podcast. A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information. Featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Hey, you got your Coco 3 yet? Coco. Alright, welcome everyone to episode 34 of the Coco Crew Podcast. Uh, we've got a full house tonight. Uh, of course, it's uh, me, John. Uh, we've got uh, Neil Blanchard. Hello, Neil. Hello. How's everyone doing out there? <laughs> Mike Rowan. Hello, Mike. I'm doing good. And hello, Boise. How are you? Hey, guys. Doing well. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so here we are, episode 34, coming up close to our three-year mark. Very exciting, huh? Awesome. Uh, wow. Great. <laughs> time is ticking. Coco Fest is only one month away. That means uh, Tandy Assembly is, on, what, seven months away? So the year is progressing. We're getting uh, to our milestone events. Uh, first one of the year here, Cocoa Fest coming up. Everyone got projects underway? <laughs> Anything you want to share? Out of time. Out of time? Uh, too, too, yeah, too time, time crunched. But there's <laughs> always next year or Tandy Assembly. <laughs> well, that is true. Tandy uh, Assembly is a good backup. They do roll over a bit. Um, I know I've been uh, spent the weekend building up a bunch of um, Game Master cartridge PCBs ready to load up with an enhanced version of Farfall because you can never get enough Farfall. I'll <laughs> <laughs> agree to that. <laughs> I've got a, a little more code for a special feature I'd like to work on. Um, haven't quite got that, so I'm not ready to burn the ROMs yet. It's underway in progress. I've got boxes folded. Um, I've got labels in hand. Start putting stuff together. Cool. Um, anyone else uh, want to share what they're up to? Or I am uh, working on kind of the same thing you're doing with uh, cartridges. Anyhow, not the nice sound one, not the, not the GMCs, but uh, going to do a run of Flood It and Bomb Threat. Very exciting. Nice. Very exciting. <laughs> cool. Anyone pick up anything cool on eBay lately or any uh, anywhere else for that matter? <laughs> no? Everyone quiet? Saving your money for Coco Fest. No but minimum most, bid auction. Most of what I bought were parts for uh, cartridges. So <laughs> <laughs> I picked up a few things here and there, but nothing too uh, nothing too fancy to, to talk about here. Is that, is that our intro? It was a quiet month. <laughs> I guess that's probably good enough to get us warmed up. <laughs> All right. Well, a little bit of a short intro, but uh, that's good enough. Um, we'll take a short break and be back with some announcements. Unlock the real power of your Coco with great deals from Danisoft. Like Big Basic, it allows you to create programs up to 470k, just 39.95 US, 46.50 Canadian. Or Big Gram Disk, get the speed of working with programs and data in memory. You can format, copy, backup, just like a real disk drive. Just 12.95 US, 14.95 Canadian. See our ad in Rainbow Magazine. When you think Coco, think great deals from Danisoft. We're located in sunny Mississauga. All right. Now we're back with some announcements. You are listening to the Coco Crew Podcast. We are available on Twitter as at Coco Crew Podcast, all one word. 
if you like to tweet, uh, feel free to tweet at us. We might even tweet back at you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have a group on Facebook called the Coco Crew Podcast. That is four separate words, the Space Coco Space Crew Space Podcast. Search for us, and I'm sure you'll find us. Coco Crew Podcast is available on uh, iTunes and Google Play for normal podcast downloads. Also available through Stitcher and TuneIn for streaming. Coco Crew Podcast is a member of the Throwback Network. This is a listing of similarly themed uh, retro-oriented podcasts, uh, some of which are technology-oriented, some of which are simply uh, culture or whatever oriented uh, going back to the uh, the 80s or the great time when we all grew up here <laughs> uh, so if you're looking for another podcast to listen to then do check out the throwback network similarly we are also listed on the game by game podcast information hub this is a, also a list of technology oriented podcasts in this case um, all of them focus on video game systems and home computers if um, that sort of thing sounds like what you'd like to listen to and you're done listening to the Coco Crew, then uh, feel free to check out the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. Audio for the Coco Crew Podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you have a need to host audio on the Internet, uh, we, ch- we recommend that you check out Cyber Ears where you will get your audio on your terms. If you want to reach out and touch someone on the Coco Crew Podcast or if you want to interact with the host via email, we have some addresses set up uh, to reach all of the hosts. Uh, we have show, S-H-O-W, at CocoCrew.org, podcast at CocoCrew.org, feedback at CocoCrew.org. Uh, each of those will reach all the hosts. If you want to reach us uh, separately, uh, you can reach out to John, J-O-H-N, at CocoCrew.org, Neil, N-E-I-L, at CocoCrew.org, Mike, M-I-K-E, at CocoCrew.org, and uh, it should be uh, Boise, B-O-I-S-Y, at CocoCrew.org. Uh, here we've got uh, a couple of special events coming up. One is one that I host on the Internet called the Retro Challenge. The Retro Challenge is basically a, um, a one-month event in which people propose their own projects using uh, retro computers, which are roughly defined as uh, computer systems that are 10 years old or older. And for the month of April, they do their project and they blog about it. I act as the judge and uh, declare uh, well, a comment on the projects, declare winners, and sometimes award prizes of dubious quality or value, but it's all fun. <laughs> um, check out the link in the show notes. You can check out the rules. And remember, the uh, Retro Challenge is kind of like the opposite of thermonuclear war or global thermonuclear war. The only uh, way to lose is not to play. <laughs> Let's see, coming up, we've still got our, our listing here for the Call for Papers. Do you uh, want to talk about the Call for Papers, Boise? Yeah, it would be nice if we get somebody to do it because uh, no one has stepped up yet. Oh, well, the Call for Isn't Papers that... looking a little bleak. <laughs> yeah, it's about oh. to be a scream for paper shortly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, well... Uh, that would be cool. Get some uh, some stuff out there. Um, some scholarly works are related to the cocoa. I think that'd be very cool. If you've got something, if you've been uh, too shy to propose it because you're afraid of all the, the amazing competition that you were going to face, uh, well, <laughs> you, you know, you're able to get your stuff published and uh, and uh, reviewed right. by by uh, the master himself, Mr. Boise Pete. All right, moving on. Um, so our event list. 
So number one on the event list coming up is uh, April 21st to 22nd of 2018. That's the 27th annual last Chicago Cocoa Fest. Of course, as you know, they call it the last because they never know if there's going to be another one. <laughs> this is the big event that uh, got us all together, that inspired this podcast. It is uh, great fun. It's uh, the start of our Cocoa New Year. It's always a good event. Have um, people show up, bring their projects, talk about what they're working on, bring their new Cocoa products and uh, offer them to each other for sale, help each other fix uh, things, whether it's software or hardware. It's a great event. Can't say enough about it. Touch the heron. Yeah. Touch the heron. Touch the heron. Can't say enough about it, but I think we will be saying more about it later in the podcast. I just have a feeling about that. Anyway, well, moving on. That same weekend, if if you just can't make it to the Chicago area and you are in the southeastern part of the United States, uh, in or around Atlanta, uh, VCF Southeast 2018 is being held April 21st and 22nd, 2018. Um, this has been to several of these events. It's a good event, a lot of a variety of computer systems, um, older systems. Uh, seems to lean a little more towards um, home computer stuff than, say, the VCF East event, which leans a little heavier towards big iron kind of systems. They each have their own personality, and they're both... Uh, entertaining to go to in my opinion so um you may want to check that out also if you're on the east coast uh more towards the mid-atlantic same weekend (laughs) it's popular Um, they have if you're in the pittsburgh area you can uh, go to the pittsburgh retro gaming expo they have a website uh not a lot of information on there, but um, it says we're back this year better than ever. More space, more vendors, more games, panels, and bands. Come and celebrate gaming with us in a vibrant marketplace as we take over the Ace Hotel. So I'm presuming they're in the Ace Hotel in Pittsburgh. If uh, you can't make it to Coca Fest and you're closer to Pittsburgh than you are to Atlanta, then you probably want to check that one out. All right. Well, if you make it past that weekend to the next weekend, April 28th of 2018, and you are uh, um, south of the equator, uh, at least in the uh, the American uh, part of the hemisphere. Uh, you want to may, maybe want to check out the uh, fourth uh, Encontro Club of Color Rio uh, event in uh, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Sounds like a cool event. This is the Brazilian equivalent to Coca Fest. All the Brazilian clones are representative, or, or maybe not all of them, but uh, certainly a lot of them. Looks like a good uh, group of guys to go hang out with. So if you are in Brazil on the 20th of April, uh, make your way to Rio and uh, check it out. Mid-May, May 18th to 20th, 2018. Um, if uh, you are in uh, New Jersey or Wall, New Jersey or the general area, you want to check out VCF East 2018. Uh, this is held on uh, an old army base it has some history related to um, uh, Marconi Radio. They have a museum there, a lot of old computers. Um, they have uh, some other museums there on the same sites with some cool stuff there. But it's a good place to go and uh, check out some old computers, see what people have brought. Um, they probably have speakers. I don't see the list yet. They may be up somewhere, and I'm just not seeing it. Oh, here we go. Keynotes. Learn about Univac restoration, hacking the Apollo 14, Apollo 14 guidance computer. And developing the ARPANET, Bill Dromgoul, Don Isles, and Dave Walden are this year's keynote speakers. We've all been to this event. 
I think we all approve. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm thinking of going again or I know that we've had talked about possibly Mike you might be going. Yeah, I might. I might have a work conflict now, but uh, I'll have to I got to yeah. pull the trigger on that one way or the other shortly. Okay. Yeah, let me know cuz I'm more inclined to go if you guys go. Yeah. It is cool to have uh, have a buddy at any event you go to. <laughs> So cool. Well, that's the VCF East, May 18th to 20th, 2018. All right, coming up, June 2nd, 2018. Here's one. I think we mentioned this one last year, um, maybe a little late. This is a CorksCon 2018. That is the Columbus, Ohio Retro Gaming Society. They have a gaming convention called CorksCon, Saturday, June 2nd, from 10 to 4, at the McCoy Center in Hilliard, Ohio. Check out the link in the show notes for more information. Uh, looks like a cool thing to go and check out if you're in uh, that part of Ohio. I may have to check that out this year just to give a little report on it. Yeah, sounds like a good idea. You can be a roving reporter. Yeah, Columbus isn't that far from you, right, Mike? Yeah, a couple hours, yeah. Ah, it's yeah. in your backyard. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> it. It's like New Orleans from me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so final entry on the list here, July 16th to 22nd, 2018, Kansas Fest. Kansas Fest 2018, this is an Apple II convention. you notice the dates. It, it uh, lasts for um, a week or so. See, do I have the right dates here? Schedule for July. I think I'm off by a day, 17th to 22nd. Anyway, they're having a keynote speaker, Roger Wagner, who um, he was responsible for a, a, a magazine, series of magazine articles called Assembly Lines uh, that uh, taught a lot of uh, uh, young people how to program 6502 Assembly back in the day. So that should be a good uh, good event to go and uh, to see his uh, speak, his keynote speech, and enjoy the rest of the event, which always has lots of cool technical talks and uh Cool events, um, people coming, hanging out with their, their Apple II and other retro gear, staying in the dorms, fun to be had all around. I think that brings us to the list of the end of the list of announcements. Um, we're going to take another little break, and then um, maybe we'll be back with some news. Welcome to Coco Mutual's Wild Kingdom. Today we are bringing you a special wildlife report on Coco Fest attendee behavior during which a scientist will attempt to infiltrate the festivities disguised in only a Coco Cat costume. Our report today comes from the village of Lombard, Illinois, located near the shore of Lake Michigan. At around 8.30 a.m., attendees make their way toward registration. This station allows each attendee to be tagged with a badge for tracking purposes. From registration, attendees make their way into the presentation and exhibit areas with a brief time to explore before the first presentation of the day will begin. The weather in springtime is often unpredictable, but even when blanketed in snow, the Cocoa Fest attendee seems as content as when grazing on a summer pasture. Uh-oh. One attendee has lost his footing. He's all right, though just shaken up a bit. Perhaps the anticipation of barbecue later in the evening is partly to blame. Later in the day, bidding cries pierce the silence as a no-minimum bid auction takes place, with attendees boldly participating. Coco Fest is unique in many ways. 
Nowhere else in North America can you see such a wealth of color computer devotees. We all owe a debt of gratitude to the far-sighted men who conceived the idea of Cocoa Fest and to the hard-working men and women of Portillo's restaurants. Be sure to join us again April 21st and 22nd for Cocoa Fest in Lombard, Illinois. Cocoa Fest, make it your own. Now we're back with some news. First item on the list, uh, seems like it's become traditional almost to uh, start with the first item on the list is one from Jim Gary. And uh, here we have uh, Alert Zero, which is um, an entry that he has for the 10-line uh, basic um, contest, which I think we've mentioned last month. I don't know, watching the video, I'm not sure I understand it. It has the word alert up in the corner and a big countdown. Not really sure how to play, but you can check out the video. See if it uh, is something you uh, can make out and understand and give it a try. Jim does a lot of good work. I'm sure uh, it'll be um, something worth uh, spending a little bit of your time on. Okay, the next item on the list is um, a video by some kind of group that does a lot of video videos. All I know is they're called DataBits, so I don't really know who the people are, if they're anyone that's really part of the community. But they've got a, a video where they've set up uh, both um, – uh, they've got a Coco setup, and they've also got an, a, a, a Nintendo Famicom. The Famicom, of course, was the Japanese version of the Nintendo Entertainment System. Famicom uh, had a mechanism you could set up that added a keyboard to it and a basic uh, cartridge, which made it very much like a home computer. And so they've got a video that kind of demonstrates um, both the Famicom with its family basic mm -hmm. cartridge and then come kind of compare and contrast it a little bit with the uh, the Coco. I don't know if this is the best review ever or or, or not, but <laughs> if you're not already familiar with the Famicom, it might be educational to you to see what else was out there or what the Japanese were doing. Otherwise, I thought it was a pretty decent video to watch. Any of you guys get a chance to watch that? Yeah, I thought it was a good video as well. Uh, nice coverage of the, the Famicom. Yeah. Is that something you have one of, John? I actually do have one. Um, cool. My boy um, programmed it a little bit, and of course he went on to something else because you know how kids are these days. But <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad. So uh, you know the basic is uh, about like any other basic of the era. Um, they do have a kind of a way to control some of the sprites using basic that you can play with that a little bit. So uh, I don't know. I mess with it some. It's it's uh, it's not a bad system. How do you save programs on that? The keyboard that attaches to a special adapter or a special plug or whatever that's on the Famicom it has a quarter or an eighth inch jacks that okay. uh, connect to a cassette. <laughs> cool. Similar to what the Apple II did for cassette or whatever. So other than the fact you have to use a cassette, um, not bad. I don't know if they have any way where you can use it with a Famicom disk system. That would be kind of cool. That would yeah. be. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. I didn't know if you could save to those discs. I mean, that was a proprietary format they had, but yeah, I'd never mess around with one. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know of a way to do that one. At least not with the the basic cartridge or whatever by itself. The next time we have Lee Perkins has got a um, a Git repository he set up, kind of as a demonstration of uh, what he uses for doing uh, Cocoa development. If you're interested in how to develop four-year Cocoa from a modern PC, uh, you may want to check out what he's done and uh, see what he has to say, uh, how he's configured this. Uh, it looks like he's using um, Visual Studio Community Edition, along with the uh, drive wire connected to the PC. 
Um, I've got my own setup to do that sort of stuff, but um, <laughs> it uh, it may help some people be able to check that out. Yeah, it is cool when people share that, even if it's you know not your environment, yeah. because everybody has their own preferences on things. But uh, yeah, cool. I always need to see what people are doing. Yeah, I like yeah. that. The very personal dev setups, you know. Yep. All right, moving on. The next one is a Pig 2018 update <laughs> from someone. Uh, someone who calls himself Daft Spaniel. I had to figure out and go figure out. I'm pretty sure that is Davy Mitchell. If not, then Davy and or Dash Manual can correct me. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got a game here called Pigs or Pig. I guess it's Pig. Pig 2018. I don't know. It looks like some sort of dice game translated to the Coco and or Dragon. I don't know much about it. It looks like it's using the um, demographics uh, modes for displaying graphics and text. Like I said, it's a dice game. It's probably similar in some ways to, say, I don't know, Yahtzee or something like that. Probably not a bad thing to translate to the Coco, depending on uh, what level of gameplay you're seeking. Probably not exactly arcade action, but it <laughs> should <laughs> <laughs> be fun. So, cool. Thanks, Davey, for sharing. Very cool. Okay, another one from uh, this video from Jim Gary. Says the game is Air Raid by Kenneth Rygard. It's a basic game that uh, shows shots going up uh, towards an airplane flying over. <laughs> so we can kind of imagine what the game must be like. This is a ported to a microcolor basic uh, on the MC-10 from the color computer. This is a worse in 4K. So, uh, again, if you're looking for um, more games to play on the MC-10, or sometimes I wonder if their uh, catalog might not be bigger than everything else. <laughs> yeah, it's getting there for sure. Very cool stuff. Ken, uh, I think, is the brother of uh, Jason Rygard, who uh, is a regular over on that other Coco show. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> one brother kind of dragged the other one back into the Coco world, so that's cool. Nice to have a, a, the expanded um, Coco universe, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Very cool. All right, moving on. So this is from Diego Barizo. Hadn't heard a lot out of him in a while. I'm not sure what he's been up to. But uh, he's got a game called Mind Camp. I want to thank others to help me with my Mind Camp game. It's almost done. Would love some feedback. I think he may have made even more progress uh, since then because his post was from February. But he had a, a disc image he posted to the Cocoa list. The Mind Camp, I guess, it looks like it's similar to Minesweeper in some ways. But it's set instead of being set on the ocean, it's set like on a, on the land. I think at some point you have to then navigate through. You have to, like, do the minesweeper thing to find the mines, and then you have to, like, navigate across the field or something like that. I may not have that 100% correct, but... <laughs> I, I, think uh, that's, uh, I think that's pretty accurate, uh, cool. how you're describing it. Cool. So, looks like a cool game. Anybody graphics, get a uh, yeah, graphics good graphics. Yeah, yeah, the graphics cool. did look very good. Um, this link probably doesn't show them, but uh, there were some other links. You go looking for it in the Facebook group. Uh, I'm sure you can find some some pictures. And that game is uh, that's all done in basic too. Is it? I'm pretty sure it is. I think so. Yeah. That's pretty cool. You talked about this last month. I for some reason I heard Mind Comp. <laughs> well, it can be a struggle. <laughs> totally different game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully it's more fun than that than uh, reading that at least, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, another um, another Jim Gary uh, ten liner basic entry called Maze Race. 
So you got it running here on uh, the MC10 using the uh, semi-graphics mode. Seems to be trying to plot out a maze of some sort. He does have a link in the basic contest. Again, it's always cool to see Jim um, produce things and publish them for us to ponder over. <laughs> and cool that you can get that from a 10-line basic program. It is kind of cool that you can do that much in 10 lines of basic. Yeah. So the next one comes from Paris Arat, a link from the uh, archive.worldofdragon.org, and it says Cocoa Flash can work on a dragon slash Tano. I guess he's uh, developing software for uh, utilizing the Cocoa Flash module by Jim Brain. Which, of course, is a uh, 8 megabytes of flash memory with a 64K of SPI EEPROM. And it also includes the uh, Orchestra 90 uh, uh, DAX. So if you play a game that uh, supports Orchestra 90, you can uh, do it all on one cartridge. Apparently, this is a, a draw to people to want to write software to support it. <laughs> I know we've got at least two or three versions uh, of the on the Cocoa to run it. And use a version, uh, a Dragon-oriented program to, to run it. Any of you guys uh, use those programs? I know Neil has uh, Mr. Rivell's version on on the Cocoa Flash, isn't that right? Yeah, I have. Uh, it's uh, it's not bad, but it's a little tricky to get used to, and it it definitely yeah. takes time if you want to flash uh, a whole pile of ROMs on it. But if yeah. you're doing a few at a time, it's not not a problem. Yeah. So how does the Pairs version here look? Does it look similar or uh, comparable? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. It's not doesn't look too much. Uh, not a lot different, so. Cool. Well, oh, nice. It's working on the dragon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, for Good sure. Yeah. Good to know All right. Here's one I threw in. It's not really a normal kind of announcement. It's just a product that I came across. Professional RF coax to HDMI DVI demodulator TV tuner for NTSC system. So this is one of those um, you know, people complain about not knowing how to hook up their cocoa to a modern machine. Some people have a harder time with it than others, not always. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I think it may be just a misunderstanding of how things work, but either way, the answer is not does not have to be replace uh, the guts of your Cocoa with a Cocoa VGA board or whatever else. Uh, if you're happy with uh, the output you're getting from the RF modulator, you may be able to use something like this to um, plug the RF modulator into this TV tuner and then the HDMI out to your new modern 65-inch yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> TV above the, the mantelpiece or whatever. It may not be the greatest solution, uh, certainly not the most technical solution. It'll cost you a little bit of money, but it might be the easiest in some ways, and certainly the um, nobody will kill their cocoa doing, using this, I don't think. Yeah, no internal modification. It'd be kind of so. fun to play Dino Wars on a 65 inch screen. <laughs> 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 we should do that at Coco Fest. Then we got to break out the projector. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's uh, something, don't they usually do that at VCF uh, Southeast? They have. Uh, yeah, some, yeah, they do. Yeah, and they usually have a Coco. Yes. yes. Atari 2600 and a Coco. They'll have yeah. four systems hooked up. They switch them out through the day, but that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. They've got some type of multiplexer that shows everything on one screen, I think, right? Or it's yeah, four yeah, projectors. Yeah, it it's, yeah, it's a projector that splits into four screens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's pretty cool. Coco 3. Coco 2. Coco 1. Color computers are go. This is Lady Penelope. 
On behalf of International Rescue, I would like to thank you for listening to the Coco Crew podcast. Stay tuned for more wonderful color computer news and information. I've run my small business on a Coco for years. I love my 6809, but I need to expand. Then you need the new TC9 Tomcat from Frank Hogg Laboratory. The Tomcat? What's that? The Tomcat is a major improvement over the Coco 3. The TC9 picks up where Tandy left off. It allows you to upgrade from your color computer without throwing anything away. Is it faster? The TC9 6809 processor is 25% faster, and you can expand by adding a 68000 or 68030 CPU to double or triple performance. Can I connect a modern printer? The TC9 features an industry-standard parallel printer port. What about memory? You can place 512K of memory on the TC9 motherboard, or even use your Coco 3's 512K memory expansion board in the TC9. The Disto 1MB expansion for the Coco simply plugs in without any soldering. Later, you can expand the Tomcat with the K-Bus and add up to 14 megabytes of RAM. What about serial ports? The Tomcat has two real serial ports. Connect modems, terminals, printers, and even a serial mouse. How about cartridges? The TC9 has a standard Cocoa bus, so Cocoa cartridge packs can be used. What kind of keyboard? The TC9 uses a PC-compatible keyboard. Wow! Sounds like the TC9 was made for me. If you currently own a Coco 3 and use both RS-DOS and OS 9, the TC9 Tomcat is your road to the future. Create a Coco 3 compatible system and then expand at your own pace at low cost. The TC9 Tomcat. Only from Frank Hogg Laboratory. User-friendly service since 1976. All right, well, this is from ShareSquid who I think we had a discussion uh, maybe last month or the month before about who is ShareSquid. I think I've pinned down ShareSquid as John Day, who is also a bit of a newer member, I think, or at least not somebody I'd heard much about until recently. But uh, he is part of the community, and he's um, doing this modern game, Return to Rom, that's inspired by the Temple of Rom by Rick Adams. And so he's posted a video now that shows some of the, the rendering of his map or whatever, the, the, the game world as it will be. It's pretty neat looking. It's sort of a, I'm not sure what the term is, but it's retro inspired. It's, obviously, this is not the Coco playing. It's um, this is a modern system, but it's playing a game inspired by a Coco game. So if that sort of thing tickles your fancy, you may want to check that out on the YouTube, uh, Return to ROM, 3D Recre- Recreation of Rick Adams, 1983 Classic TRS-80 Game. You guys check that out? Yeah, I did. I, it was. It looks fantastic. It yeah, it's like Temple of ROM or a Doom game. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it also has the feeling of watching uh, the old uh, Tron movie. <laughs> yeah, with the color scheme, yeah. Specifically. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly it. Pretty cool. So, all right, moving on. Uh, here's one from a, a magazine article. Uh, I don't know if it's really a magazine, a web magazine or whatever, called Eurogamer. Someone named Damien McFerrin raises a kind of an interesting question. Uh, the retro gaming industry could be killing game, video game preservation. <laughs> I think the gist is that they're kind of chasing away people from doing normal preservation for fear of trading on copyright, that sort of thing. I don't know. That almost would be worth a host discussion, but um, yeah, it's um, worth thinking about. You know, there's a definitely a, a tension between the preservation of what we consider our history or the, what led to the current culture or whatever the video game stuff, and the people that are still trying to make a buck off of it, uh, which I don't really 
mind is kind of is there's some pluses to that uh you can get products you wouldn't otherwise be able to get i don't know like i said might would be worth a discussion some other time maybe we'll uh, stick that in our hat <laughs> if it comes up again all right moving on quick basic lives on with qb64 uh, I think we've mentioned this before, but kind of a new article. I thought I might mention it again. Have you guys are you guys familiar with QB sixty four? I'm not. What or, is that? or Quick Basic. Are we familiar with Quick Basic at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quick Basic was a, a a evolution of Microsoft Basic, uh, kind of before they got to Visual Basic or whatever. I guess mm-hmm. this QB sixty four is essentially a is a, basically the Q Basic language kind of implemented in a cross-platform engine. So you can write basically in Quick Basic and uh, produce games that run on uh, Windows or Linux or Mac or whatever. So it might be, it's the kind of thing that might be attractive to some of the people, depending on why you're interested in the Cocoa or other retro computer stuff. If you want, if you're interested in it as a platform for programming in Basic, uh, you might also consider something like QB64 you can program in that basic and uh, target um, more modern machines. So, food for thought. Well, years ago, I wrote a, um, a graphing calculator in Quick Basic. Oh, yeah? So, yeah, that was probably in 88 when I had first started college. Uh, so, it looks like you could take this and actually load up Quick Basic code and run it on different platforms. It appears Windows, yeah. Mac, Linux. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, cool, if you, especially if you have a history with Quick Basic. It, uh, might be very satisfying. So, moving on, the next items of Hackaday. They've got somebody who's um, recreating an, an old Radio Shack Science Fair project, uh, something called the Goofy Light Goofy Light P Box project. So, it looks like the kind of thing that could um, cause a lot of pain in your finger if you put it in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's probably safer ways to flash lights these days. At least check out what what this person has done uh, to um, build this project uh, inspired by Radio Shack, I guess. It might be fun to to check that out. You know, I used to love those uh, science fair projects when I was a kid. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I look forward to those. Yeah, I'm sure we've all built one or two of those. I like his high-voltage project, though. Oh, yeah? It some danger to it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, throw a little danger in the mix. Very cool. All right, here's one that I included for my own pleasure here. <laughs> uh, title of the Hackaday article, Retro Competing for the Forgotten. Just to frame this one, um, a lot of people have probably heard of WINE, which WINE stands for when, uh, WINE is not an emulator, <laughs> because people are clever, right? But yeah. WINE is a, is, a, is a method of running Windows programs originally on Linux, uh, maybe... And does is there does Wine also target Mac OS? Not sure. Uh, um, I'm not sure either. I was thinking that it does now that since um you know since uh, the Macs went to x86 some time ago. Uh, either way, the reason why they call it say Wine is not an emulator, uh, they kind of fall back on that you're actually when you run a program a Windows program under Wine on Linux, you're actually loading the code into memory in pretty much the same way you would load a Linux program into memory. Uh, And then you play some tricks with um, when it makes certain kinds of uh, system calls or other function calls. You'd basically trick it into calling the Linux native code. (laughs) Um, So the program itself is 
It's still a Windows program, essentially unmodified, but running very much as a Linux program. And so as background for that, kind of looking at that for whatever reason and had a reason to, um, to run an OS2 program, it turns out OS2 and Windows, the 32-bit Windows or whatever, share some DNA. And so the kind of the, the techniques that work on one can sort of be transplanted to work on the other. And so this person has gone to some trouble to figure out how to load OS2 programs <laughs> under Linux in uh, sort of the same fashion as Wine. And so now he's calling this Wine, I think, <laughs> <laughs> which is clever, I guess. Um, yeah, Twine anyway. with a two, right? Yeah. <laughs> Is it twenty? Yeah. So, um, so anyway, I was a, a uh, an OS two fan back in the day when there were OS two fans, and so uh, this uh, and as a current Linux person, this uh, appealed to me. Whatever retro computing project you're pursuing, no matter how silly they may seem, you can always think to yourself, "Well, whatever I'm doing, at least I'm not trying to load an OS two program <laughs> under because <laughs> <laughs> that's just crazy." <laughs> I was, an, I was an OS2 fan as well. Yeah. <laughs> so pretty cool stuff. Uh, that's uh, by Al Williams and Hackaday. Uh, Al didn't actually. He wrote the article. Let's see who was the person. Brian Gordon. Very good. Thanks for that indulgement. Uh, we'll now move on. Here's a, um, a link from um, or a post to the MC10 Facebook group by James Diffendaffer. Does I post it a speed up for microcolor basic in the Yahoo group messages? No new ROM required, and it's in BASIC. Uh, I know James has been uh, for a while working on a project where he's re actually rewriting some of the ROM routines for the MC10, trying to speed up microcolor BASIC overall. I'm not prepared to really to explain what he's doing here, but he's got some sort of hack uh, that makes um, he found he identified some slow point in the MC10 ROM uh, that he could um, patch up, I guess, in BASIC <laughs> and posted it. You know, later on, you'll, you'll see um, he's got some um, videos or whatever that uh, demonstrate the performance improvements. If you're writing code on the uh, MC10 in BASIC and you wanted to go faster, you may want to check out what James has to offer. I, it'd be cool to eventually see some uh, alternative ROMs come out for, for these. The yeah. MC10. It is cool. I mean, he does have an, a ROM image uh, that he's been working on. I'm not sure if he considers it done or not. But, um, yeah, very cool. All right, we mentioned uh, Temple of Rom from Rick Adams. Rick now posts that um, he um, has is able to build Temple of Rom from source. I guess he um, figures whatever agreement he had with Handy claims the rights uh, to um, to the source code, and he's uh, doing whatever he wants to with it. Very good. I, I don't think he actually had the source for Temple of Rom, but I, I believe it was William Astle yeah. had uh, helped him with the disassembly, set him back up to be able to assemble a symbol of Rom and uh, do cool stuff with it. Very cool. It's cool to see Rick Adams, he kind of rejoined the community and uh, sort of stuck with it and is writing code yeah. and whatever. Yeah, that's good great. to see. Yep. Very cool. Okay, Darren's Maze Race mod from Jim Gary. So it's another video. It's a maze game. This one looks more like a maze. I'm not sure if it's a different level or what, but <laughs> I assume Darren is Darren Atkinson to, because I know he's active in the MC10 community. I don't know, I guess they're collaborating on something here to um, 
pass some code back and forth. So it's nice to see uh, guys uh, cooperating like that, improving code and uh, exercising the MC10 of all things. Huh? <laughs> you, you know, very cool. The MC10 is getting more love now than it did back in the day when it was new. I think you might be right. Yeah, that's true. Yep. <laughs> all right. So moving on, here's a post uh, by James Jones. Basic 09 iCode, what it is and why. Kind of delving into some details of um, really an OS 9 kind of thing. But I don't know if Basic 09 is really tied to OS 9. Not in any theoretical sense, but it kind of is in a real sense, I guess. <laughs> but Right. Um, so Basic 09 compiles to, down to iCode, and there's some similarities between um uh, I code to say the, the Java uh, JVM uh, code that uh, we're familiar with Java or P code that we were once familiar with with Pascal, and so he kind of describes uh, some of how that works and um, how you use Runby to run the I code uh, versus uh, Basic 09 to uh, to do the interactive coding. Or <laughs> it's uh, James is a real real smart guy, a real good writer. Read his article, uh, you might learn something. What do you think, Boise? You're our expert. Did you like the article? I did. Uh, I worked with James for a number of years when I was at Microware, close together with him on some, uh, well, not so much on projects, but just in and around the area we worked close by. I was considered him to be a um, an exemplary computer science guy, and I read this article and it was well written. I mean, it's just perfect stuff. Glad to see my former colleague taking some time to write some excellent stuff, especially on something like this. It is good. It's uh, good to have that technical des- description. And uh, like I said, it's a good writer and, and has done it in a way that I think is understandable for uh, for folks. So, Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right, moving on. Uh, here's a, I'm not sure where I stumbled upon, the, upon this, but... Um, this is the uh, Quotum homepage, Q-O-D-E-M, Quotum. It says, welcome. Quotum is a public domain re-implementation of the DOS-era Q-Modem serial communications package. So there's something that um, doesn't really exist anymore <laughs> from, uh, that, that was very popular back in the, say, early to mid-'90s. was basically the serial terminal program. I mean, uh, they exist, I guess, but certainly not something that is only talk about and that, that was the kind of tool you would use back in the days of the bbs where you'd primary purpose was to give you a, an interface to your modem to be able to reach out and then touch a computer somewhere else and uh, so q modem was uh, one of these sorts of programs uh, there were others um procom and i'm sure i can there are a number of others people you think of there were certainly and these that's uh those are pcs i'm sure there were you know, the ones for the Coco or, um, I don't know, you guys could probably name them better than I can, but uh, <laughs> Mickey term or whatever. Or is it Mikey term? Mikey term. <laughs> um, Viral term. Um, anyway. <laughs> with, with term, the, auto term, V term. Exactly. Yep. Uh, so with all the, the, the kerfuffle or whatever lately about um, using the serial ports to reach out over the internet to talk to um, computers uh, being running BBSs or whatever, you know, go from your PC out to um, Coco BBS or whatever, you may want to use something like this. Here you go, modern maintained and uh, targets uh, Windows, Linux, Mac, just about anything. 
Even has prepackages for Fedora and Debian. Very cool. Cool. I'll have to try that. All right. Which we does by pressing clear I wish to watch a bouncing sphere The cry goes up a far and near Coco Co- Co- 3 Coco Co- 3 Coco Co- 3 Coco Co- 3 Backup lightning Roar a floppy Switching disks to make a copy Coco Co- 3 nothing better than the smooth, fresh, mellow tobacco flavor of a good cigarette, cigar, or pipe. But tobacco smoke can leave a film that interferes with solder pads on your bad printed circuit boards, leaving you to contend with dingy, dull solder joints. Sure, you could quit smoking, but now you don't have to. New Pepsodent Solder Paste cuts through the film left by tobacco smoke, brightening solder pads while allowing your surface mount components to adhere for proper soldering. Pepsodent's patent-pending formula contains zirconium silicate that leaves solder pads clean, shiny, and bright. Now you don't have to choose between the pleasure of a refreshing smoke or better meantime between failure. Keep your boards looking their brightest and best with new Pepsodent solder paste. And for a limited time, receive a free trial size of Pepsodent solder paste. Look for specially marked cartons of Marlboro, Camel, and Winston cigarettes for details. So the next link here, uh, Game Developer Conference video, I thought was uh, interesting. It's it's a math for game programmers. Building a better jump. One of my pet peeves with the, uh, a number of Coco games from, say, back in the day, shall we say, is that the physics, uh, so to speak, that went into implementing jumps <laughs> um, <laughs> were ridiculous and wrong. <laughs> and so you end up with this really slow and elongated and ridiculously high and slow. And I mentioned slow jump. Um, so I kind of threw this one in here as. Um, Hopefully, if anybody's going to be writing any platform-style games and throwing in a jump, maybe this will help them um, simulate it correctly. <laughs> what do you think, Neil? You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, oh I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good thing. I'm glad you're adding that in there. All right, moving on. Here's one from Paulo Garcia. It's an announcement, really. Uh, from his Vintage is a New Old site. Announcement, FPGA-based Commodore 64... Uh, quote, Ultimate 64 is now under production. Has a picture of a number of um, motherboards laid out, which appear to be Commodore 64 clone motherboards. Uh, that uh, They seem to produce them in a, in a gang fashion where they're going to have to cut them apart. So you get kind of two boards from one there. Kind of cool. According to Facebook, the first 40 are already sold, and the other 60 are up for sale right now. Price is estimated at... Um, 172 euros and 73 euro cents plus taxes. Include that because maybe that gives us an eye, eyeball. Of, uh, it's often talked about producing some sort of cocoa re-implemented on the FPGA and then in some sort of hardware form factor to replace the original cocoa. Uh, it's turned some people on more than it does me, I'll be honest. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, if it's if that's the kind of thing that interests you, here's a look at maybe what some of the economics might look like. 
And you want to keep in mind that's for the Commodore 64, which um, by all measures was certainly a lot more popular than the Coco. I don't know. Any of you guys lining up for this one? No. None of you guys are Commodore 64 folks? <laughs> nope. nope. Sorry. <laughs> all right. Understandable. Okay. Here, the next one, I think it's kind of cool. I actually bought one of these. L-Star. It's um, software-defined 6502 computer. So strike one is a 6502 processor, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of cool uh, if you can find the picture of the board is there's not a lot on it. There's basically three major chips. Uh, there's a memory chip, there's a 6502 processor, and then there's one other chip. This is what's called a propeller microcontroller. And uh, the propeller is being used to implement glue logic and other I.O. There's a PS2 keyboard port and I think a composite video output. And uh, there's a couple of different loads out there for this, which you can um, uh, reprogram it to be either an Apple One or um, an OSI uh, uh, computer, which was a 6502-based computer back in the day, all on the same hardware. So it's sort of a reconfigurable thing. Which, so in, some, in that sense, it's similar to having, say, an FPGA-based board. But uh, instead of being a hardware load, uh, you've actually got software running on the uh, the propeller microcontroller that then bit bangs the uh, the CPU bus for the 6502. Kind of like I said, similar in some ways to an FPGA uh, or an emulator, but uh, kind of its own thing. If you're looking for a project, I would love to see somebody do something like this with a 6809 and using the propeller to bit bang the 6809 bus. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I didn't realize they did OSI. I'm I'm more interested in it now. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, there's a um, I think they've got a couple of Apple One variations, and then there's an OSI variation. I don't know if it's totally complete or not, but mm-hmm. they have a Git uh, repository, and you can look in there, and they've got the the different. Um, let's see. Oh, you can do a Kim as well. The Kim OSI and Apple One. I'd like to see somebody try to do that for the 1609. So there, there's your challenge. Okay. Cool application for the propeller. Yeah, definitely. Cool. All right, moving on. Our next one is for our uh, friend of the show, shall we say, Mark Marlette. Uh, and he posts some videos. Um says, all tooling and processes in place for the creation of board frames and stencils. So he's got a couple of videos showing kind of how he's doing his process for, for producing his boards. Uh, one of the main differences between doing the older through-hole electronics where you actually literally penetrate the board with the pins for your resistors and such is um, with the surface mount electronics. You're going to use this technique where you essentially um, slap down the solder paste, as, it call, as it's called, which I think is literally a little sticky. Um, and uh, you place your, your components on the on the solder paste, and then you go and bake it. <laughs> and it, it, it so, sort of solders everything at once. So it can really speed up the production time. But when you're putting down the solder paste, unless you want to sit there with a, like a fingernail paintbrush, <laughs> like for painting your fingernails or something, unless you're going to use that to, to then paint every uh, every little pad, instead what you do is you produce a, a stencil that you lay down over the board. You get it registered properly uh, and secured, and then you take a, a blob of the solder paste, and then you essentially squeegee it over the stencil. So somebody's got to make the stencils. When you make your PC boards, you can have the stencils made for a price, and they can be made out of different materials, um, depending on how much durability you need and that sort of thing. 
But so Mark's been experimenting with his own uh, CNC machine and producing his own stencils to save himself a little money on that. And probably just because it's fun and cool. <laughs> <laughs> so then Mark here has uh, shared with us um, a, a view of what his workshop looks like when he's doing the uh, stencil making, uh, which uh, looks like it's for his um, triad memory board there. Um or is that the triad, or is that something newer? I'm not sure. But uh, <laughs> anyway, not going to pre-announce anything. So, cool videos. Did you guys enjoy? Yeah, pretty awesome to see the CNC stuff at work. Yeah, it was excellent. A lot of, lot of time and effort into that, but yeah. uh, he's got it down to a science. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yep, yep. I know for a fact I talked to Mark a lot, and uh, this is going to save him a lot of time. That's of course, he's investing a little bit of time up front to save him a whole lot of time later for the various products that he's making. The Triad, of course, being one of them, and another one that uh, I think we'll find out about at Coco Fest. Yeah, that's right. Very cool. It's amazing the stuff he's doing over there. It really yeah. is. Yeah, it is. All right, moving on. Uh, so the next link here it, uh, comes from Jim Brain, also known as Retro Innovations. He's got a kind of picture. So it's look like a rendering you get from a, a PCB design uh, software. And so he says, decided to whip up a small two-slot Cocoa cart port extender for project work. Uh, obviously a little better than a wire cable, but I did add some switches for development work. First glance, you might think it's like a multi-pack or whatever, but it uh, is lacking the electronics that uh, would enable the features that, that you get with a multi-pack. Um, you know, the stuff that lets you write slot uh, assignments to uh, the address FF7F. I think he's got these switches on the side to kind of implement some of that functionality just a little more manually. It's interesting because I, I think that this looks similar to something I bought off of eBay some time ago. <laughs> you can do the same thing as a, as a multi-pack, but uh, just in a more manual fashion. I wonder what uh, kind of feedback he's gotten on this and if, he's, if it's going to turn into a real product or not. There's some applications where Y cable would be great, and this is a lot easier to work with than a cable. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think it's a that's a neat little thing. Yeah. Well, in some ways, it's like a, a very nice compromise between a Y cable, which has built-in limitations because you know you're not able to really select which pins go to to which slot. Yeah. Uh, with the with the with the chip with the switches on the side, you kind of get that flexibility. It's not quite as flexible as the MPI or equivalent, so you can't change it with software at runtime. But it's not a bad compromise if you know the um, the configuration you're going to want and are able to uh, to do the configuration with the switches. Probably appeals to anybody wanting to do a repack. Uh, that's definitely true. Cool. Well, thanks, Jim, for sharing. All right, the next one comes from David Ladd. Uh, not about floppy drives this time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, says, I thought I would share this here for informational purposes. After experimentation with Deluxe RS-232 packs and some updated drive wire read-write routines, to use the RS-232 packs, uh, says he's able to use uh, the Speed 115.2 on a Coco 1 or 2. If you use the Bitbanger port on a Coco uh, 2, you're generally limited to um, a 57,600 bits per second. And on the stock Coco 1s, you're limited to 38,400 bits per second. So by hopping over to using uh, the RS-232 pack, which has uh, a uh, hardware UART in it, the 6551, uh, you're able to use this higher rate of speed. Uh, and you can still and do your drive wire uh, over the faster connection on the, on the older machines. 
So that's kind of cool. Now, what's not mentioned here, the 6551 and the RS-232 pack, certain older ones were known to have uh, some defects related to handshaking, I guess, where they actually could end up losing bits. Uh, you guys familiar with that? Yeah, I mean, there's several write-ups out there on it. Yeah, so. Uh, I think it's an actual it's flaw in the chip, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, I think it is a chip. Now, depending on what information you get, there's suggestions that at some point that was fixed, kind of quietly fixed in the production runs of the 6551. So the age that you get may or may not have that problem. And then, then you find other things that say, yeah, the new ones don't have that problem, but they have this other problem that's sort of just as bad or similar or whatever. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. Your mileage may vary. Uh, it sounds like David's had good luck. There's uh, a certain amount of checksumming or, or CRC checking or whatever in the drive wire transactions. So if you right. do lose a bit or two, you may not lose it that, you know, you're not going to lose your whole connection necessarily or whatever. So it, it may not be that bad. It may be that the faster speed makes up for it. I don't know. What do you think, boys? You're the drive wire man. So uh, this is interesting. It's certainly valuable for Cocoa 2s to increase the speed. The code size should be smaller because all you're doing is you're just writing to a register as opposed to actually doing the bit banging. But the appeal, I think, of the drive wire bit banger solution is that it's built into the Cocoa. You don't have to find an RS-232 pack, which they're out there, but they're not as plentiful as uh they used to be, I would imagine. So it's it's kind of neat. I'm I'm glad David did. I think it was a great thing. I actually had thought about doing it one time. Just I didn't bother with it because uh, I felt that the bit banger served the purpose. But uh, it certainly is a uh, you know a cool project, and it expands the drive wire protocol and the drive wire uh, product itself into other hardware, which is cool. I'm I'm all for it. Very exciting. Thank you, David, for sharing. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. Cool stuff. Now, I know he's now waiting uh, not so patiently for uh, for Jim Brain or someone else to release a um, a serial card that goes faster. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see how that goes. All right, moving on. So we have an update from Simon Jonason. Some time ago, Simon had produced a, a tool, which is really a, a website, essentially, that uh, is called SG Edit, and it would let you use your mouse to help design uh, a screen uh, using the semi-graphics characters, and then you could save it off. I guess David Mitchell or Davy Mitchell, uh, David Mitchell uh, has helped him uh, do some enhancements there, added some flexibility, added some different output options, I think, to accommodate both basic programmers and assembly language programmers. I think it might actually be able to do a reload on data, which before it, I don't think it was able to do. Uh, so you can kind of save your work and come back and, and pick up from where you'd been. Anyway, SGN is a pretty cool tool. I used it to, for doing the opening screen on Xmas Rush. Definitely nice to have, and it's good to see it's uh, gaining some extra functionality. You guys ever use SGN for anything? Not yet, but uh, definitely going to add it to the tool list. looks pretty cool. I've seen a lot of people playing with it and posting some stuff on Facebook. So. I, uh, that's definitely a tool I want to get familiar with. Amazing what you can do with it, actually. Yeah, the graphics cool. are pretty nice. Yeah. It is nice to have a drawing tool for that mode. The mode has a lot of limitations kind of inherent to it, so sometimes it's nice to have a tool kind of enforcing the rules on you uh, and still let you play around. It's kind of cool. All right, moving on to our last item. 
One year ago, on March 9, 2017, Sabitha Software announced the SurSound Coco Sound Card, today referred to as SurSound, without the space. Today, we present to you the first public demonstration of the project, SurSound Demo 1 Introduction. This seven-minute video walks through the basic concept of the device and shows how easy it is to convert basic play music to use the SurSound device. Anyway, he's got a cool video. I, I like the concept he's got here. Um, um, I prefer people buy a uh, Game Master card if they want the chip. <laughs> and I think uh, you could do some of the same stuff with the, the uh, Game Master technology. And, and in fact, uh, with some cooperation, I think we probably will be able to do this at some point. But in the in the short run, uh, Alan's got his uh, yeah, basically the same the same sound chip I'm using in the Game Master card, but he's hung it off of the serial port. Uh, with an Arduino or an AVR controller, one way or the other, and the the cool the cool twist that he's done is he's made the Arduino smart enough to be able to essentially interpret the data that you would pass to a play command and extend the color basic, and then have the the microcontroller take that data and play music on the uh, SN76489 chip, and so that makes it very easy to uh, plug his device in to the Bitbanger, and then a program written in BASIC that, uh, that plays music. And with uh, some very simple changes, you could, uh, instead of playing music using the CPU on the Coco and the DAC, you can uh, very easily offload the music playing to the search sound device. Kind of cool. Have you guys watched the video? Oh, yeah. And it does, it sounds so much better than the play command on the, on the Coco. The sound chip is so much better. It does. I, I can't fault the sound chip. I'm, uh, I like it. <laughs> That's yeah. why I use it. That's why I bought the company. No, wait. <laughs> um, so, yeah, very cool. I do think uh, so Alan's already kind of talked to me about maybe we can um, uh, leverage some of his code. Uh, he's talking about um, moving some of the code he's written for the Arduino over to 6809 assembly, and maybe there's a way to um, to hook it into basic when we figure that out, we're able to, to do uh, figure out how to then uh, map it to the uh, the Game Master cartridge hardware, and we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah, very cool. So I have a question. Sure. With the with the space now eliminated, it used to be called Surf Sound. Is it now Surf Sound? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, is it like Sir Siri? Siri? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Probably pronounce it however is comfortable for you. I'm sure it'll be fine. Well, with that, I think that brings us to the end of our news. So why don't we take a little break, and then we'll be back with some feedback. New from Improbable Systems, the Monu Mega Jumbo Flexi-Jig. The first expansion unit so powerful, the Coco 3 plugs into it. Simply snap your Coco 3 into the receiving slot and press the load button. Power and flexibility like never before, featuring a multiplex 35-slot Coco bus with automated cartridge carousel autoloader. A fully integrated terminal server provides you with 24 fully software-configurable RS-232C ports. Sound like never before with the embedded custom version of the Akai AX60 synthesizer. Access up to 12 petabytes of military-grade solid-state storage. Forget about modems. 
The Monu Mega Jumbo Fleximajig features a complete PBX, enabling you to easily connect multiple T1 through T5 trunk lines. Control an entire office phone system or small town exchange right from your Coco 3. Read any media with the patented UltraScan disk drive. Insert 8 inch, 5 and a quarter inch, 3 and a half inch, CD, DVD, zip, or Bernoulli discs. The UltraScan's quantum AI technology automatically determines the disk's format and transfers it to virtual disk images automatically. The Monu Mega Jumbo Flexibajig is fully self-propelled with an electric starting Rotax 277 engine. Raise or lower the unit with intuitive integrated controls. The Monu Mega Jumbo Flexibajig from Improbable Systems. It's the Coco 4. Get about it. Financing available, not legal in all states. Consult your local power utility for special power requirements. Seven-year contract required. Coco 3 sold separately. All right, and now we're back with a little feedback. First item I want to talk about comes from Tony Capolini, and he had uh, it's actually just two or three comments on our announcement post from the last episode, but I've combined them here. It says, uh, "I enjoyed this spoof commercial on the Six Million Dollar Man very much." He goes on to say, "Oh, and it says I used to love watching that show." He goes on to say, "I also enjoyed hearing Neil Blanchard reminisce about the days when BBSs were in fashion." And then he went on to say, why is Boise Pete given only a corner for talking about OS9? So Tony's looking out <laughs> for you, Boise. Good to have a fan. Thank you, yeah. Tony. Yeah, uh, very exciting. I, I like that term, spoof Marshall. Yeah, the spoof Marshall. That <laughs> and that was, uh, uh, that was a fun one to make. That was, uh, and thanks for the feedback on that, uh, by the way, Tony. But uh, uh, that was an idea that Boise came up with, and uh, we hatched it together. So it was fun to make. Oh, yeah, definitely cool. Very cool. All right. Uh, so the next thing, uh, it's really the only other thing I want to touch on. During the last episode, uh, there was a, some talk of um, another Al Huffman um, project uh, using this, uh, was it ESP? Um, I forget the number. 466. <laughs> anyway, he's got this device that uh, can, uh, used in the serial port, you can connect to and load it up with some firmware that makes it look like an, a modem on the internet. And so you can use AT style commands to connect through the serial port out over the internet uh, to machines on the internet uh, via, I guess, Telnet or TCP, either way. So kind of offhanded, uh, said something like, uh, I'm not sure why this is so exciting now, um, because um, uh, DriveWire was able to do that some time ago. And maybe we said that more than once. Um, I don't know if you listened to, to uh, Coco Talk episode 49. It sounds like that's all we said after the whole <laughs> for the rest of the show. But uh, I don't. Maybe that's not quite accurate. But anyway, so my point, the point I was trying to make was, is uh, if you like the idea of talking over the internet with your Coco you could already do that. Now, granted, the, the point that comes back at us now is, well, okay, sort of, but you have to have a drive wire server. Okay, I'll grant that. And then the, all the software that exists to use the drive wire server in this way was written for OS 9 or Nitrous 9. Um, and uh, I'm not sure that all the software that does that is written for Nitrous 9, but at least all the stuff that is easily available uh, <laughs> or available to a, to the, the public at large 
is written for a Nitrous 9. So if you're not a Nitrous 9 user or, or don't want to be one, uh, I'll have to grant you, uh, you weren't able to do the um, talk over the serial port over the network using RS-DOS. Um, so mea culpa. Didn't really mean to shoot anybody's project down. I'm sorry if it came across that way. I was merely just expressing that um, I don't remember that much excitement before. I'm not sure why it's that much excitement now. But <laughs> <laughs> if it excites you, be excited. Don't mind me. Um, but, but hey, why would Nitrous 9 be an obstacle, guys? Come on. Yeah, well, I mean, it is ease of use, right? No, sorry, I can't say that here. <laughs> Time to step up the plate and learn Nitrous 9. Yeah, well, so I actually do have some thoughts that are actually sort of inspired by this. I, I have some projects in mind that I might like to do that may change that uh, a little bit, but we'll just have to wait and see if those happen or not because sometimes thinking of projects is easier than doing them. <laughs> it's yeah. finding the time. Well, the time. That, that is it, isn't it? Just life it's is busy. Big thing, especially before CocoFest and TikTok. Anyway, well, that's uh, I think that's all the feedback we've got to really respond to now. Uh, why don't we take another short break? We'll come back with a, a host discussion, uh, a little bit about CocoFest. My dad is the greatest dad in the world. Last weekend, we went to Radio Shack and brought home a brand new 64K Coco 2. It was so cool powering it up for the first time. And we got lots of cool software. Me and my sister like to play bingo math in Downland. Dad and I like Galactic Attack and Baseball. Mom uses it too. She uses color scripts and personal finance to balance her checkbook. About the only thing that could make it better would be banning my sister from using it. Billy, that's enough. Sorry, Mom. The new color computer too, only at Radio Shack, the technology store. Take your Coco beyond the limits of tapes and diskettes. With your modem and a local phone number, you can connect to Delphi, your complete business and personal resource. Delphi has special groups for owners of the dandy color computer, including Rainbow Magazine Online and OS9 Online. Select from thousands of downloadable programs, meet friends from around the globe, or tap into the world's most comprehensive database to expand your knowledge. No extra charges for using TimeNet or Telenet. No monthly minimums. No premium for 1200 or 2400 BPS connection. And connection rates are as low as $7.20 per hour. Delphi, the world's premier online information service. Okay, welcome back. So we've got, um, I think it's going to be a special host discussion uh, this time, because I know the topic is something that is um, maybe irrationally near and dear <laughs> to the hearts of each of us. Uh, it, some to, definitely the, to the people outside the hobby, it probably seems like a bit of a silly thing. In fact, I know it does because I've talked to people <laughs> outside <laughs> the hobby that think is a little silly. But uh, we want to talk about Coco Fest. So Coco Fest is coming, and uh, we talk about Coco Fest. Uh, I think a lot. Sometimes people say not enough. I don't know. But the, what I wanted to say, or what I wanted us to talk about uh, in this segment, is. Um, what, what does Coco Fest really mean to to each of us as individuals, as as people? I guess maybe I'll I'll just start off. It's kind of cliche, but um, you know, Coco Fest. Well, first when I first went to it, uh, once I got over the what people are doing what, <laughs> and I actually went to one several years ago. It was sort of a. It meant is a bit of a trip, a bit of a road trip. 
which was fun in its own sense. And then I could go to the best cocoa flea market available. And um, that was kind of enough at the time. But, um, you know, you start going to these things and you start meeting other people that are kind of the same crazy as you. It's hard not to kind of develop uh, relationships with people, friendships. And so you go and you have this fellowship around this shared quirky interest. And it's kind of nice just to know that, that you can be part of that group. You know, for the most part, it's a great group of people. <laughs> there may be exceptions, but uh, we'll, we'll leave those out for now. Um, and uh, um, so for me, it's just something, you know, it's kind of like going to a family reunion or, or uh, Thanksgiving or whatever. It's kind of a, a touchstone in my life uh, that I just like being able to do that every year, see some of these old folks uh, <laughs> or other folks um, that uh, like the old computers specifically the cocoa and yes gives us a chance to to spread around some goods and merchandise uh, to each other but it's just nice to to have that fellowship or whatever so there there's my piece um who else would like to talk all right uh well coca fest for me first of all is uh to me the start of a new year uh, <laughs> because uh, you know not only uh, the actual fest being exciting and all but just uh you know, having it held in April or May, uh, you know, it's the spring's coming, good weather's coming, winter's out, and it's just uh, it's an exciting time. But, you know, also, like you were saying, John, you know, going to, you know, see everybody there, you know, meet good friends. I mean, that's that's how I met all you guys. If it wasn't for Cocoa Fest and this uh, silly hobby, I wouldn't even know you guys. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a really, you know, it's a cool event, and, um, yeah, I look forward to it every year. Definitely, definitely. Other thing to mention there real quick. Uh, is, is I actually enjoy the drive. Uh, for me, it's about <laughs> ten hours, ten, basically ten to twelve, depending on traffic. But you know, I actually uh, look forward to it. Yeah, I would probably enjoy it more if it were half as long. <laughs> but I do enjoy that aspect of it. You know, I used to say when I was a younger man that uh, happiness is an open road and some place to go. And so at least Cocoa Fest gives me the the some place to go and. Uh, you know, since I usually are yeah. on the road in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, going there, it's usually pretty open too. So it's an open road and some place to go, right? So yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. well, Cocoa Fest anyway, to me. Cocoa Fest to ahead. me. I, I definitely agree with you. The road trip is a cool aspect of it. I think the whole the whole thing that's fun about it is the escapism of it because I get to leave everything behind, and it's a Cocoa New Year for me as well because it's it's kind of the one event that's. Uh, well, one of two events <laughs> that are uh, kind of sacrosanct for me in the year that I kind of plan around. And uh, it's fun because it's a super relaxed environment when you're there. There's no big, heavy expectations. And it's just fun to just completely immerse yourself in your hobby and, and just let everything fall away. Uh, it's a good time to uh, meet up with people that you only see once a year, maybe, at uh, Coco Fest. Just enjoy the hobby. Enjoy seeing other people that are enjoying the hobby and uh, it's been exciting seeing it grow over the last few years and I'm hoping it'll be even bigger this year. Definitely agree there. So I think that leaves Boise. What, what do you got, Boise? Everything that you guys said is what <laughs> Cocoa Fest means to me, but I'll add a personal story here. Growing up in the South, a thousand miles away from Chicago with a father who was not particularly supportive of my fondness for computers, mostly because he just didn't understand them. Uh, the closest I ever got to a Cocoa Fest in my teen years, which was in the early to mid to late 80s, 
the exact same time that the Rainbow Fest were going on, was to get a Rainbow magazine in my mailbox and every six months or so get uh, to see the Coco Fest or actually the Rainbow Fest report, which was written by, I forgot the name of the guy that did those reports of the Rainbow, but took pictures of all these famous Coco luminaries in the booths and the people and reading those stories that accompanied those photographs. Because I was unable to go to those events as a teen, in fact, I did not go to my first Cocoa Fest until 1992, which was the first last Cocoa Fest. I actually never made it to a Rainbow Fest, but I did make it to my first Cocoa Fest, which was the first last Cocoa Fest. What it means to me is a chance to do something that I was not able to do as a kid, not because I didn't want to, but because I couldn't. So I make it a point every year to get my tail on a plane and fly to Chicago and attend for all the reasons that you guys said, because it's a great event, you get to meet some great people, hang out with friends, see what's new, keep your finger on the pulse of the community, but more so for me, because I couldn't do it as a kid, I'm damn well not going to miss out on it as an adult. End of the truth. Yeah, yeah. Life is short. Well, they're not going to do them forever. <laughs> Oh, it might seem like they are. I think I've told the story more than once, but, uh, you know, went to the Penn Fest 2000, kind of more out of a target of opportunity than anything, and enjoyed it so much. I said, well, you know, they didn't do any more Penn Fest, and, and said, well, they're still doing them in Chicago. I better get out there for as long as I can because they're not going to do them forever. <laughs> and, of course, that was... 19 years ago or 18 years ago something like that you know you know there's um, also something about you mentioned the road trip aspect of it there's something about getting there right the whole process i fly uh even you know getting to the airport that whole excitement of getting there the day before planning things out meeting up with friends and stuff i used to drive when i lived in des moines and worked at microwave in fact james jones and i would often uh ride together i would drive him and we had our own a uh, particular route planned out. We'd stop at a at a park and you know, kind of take our time getting there. And that whole process of just the anticipation of going there and the process of getting there just adds to the excitement and adds to the memories. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I I agree. I um, the uh, you know, my, one of my guilty pleasures is uh, I enjoy eating at um, a Popeye's fried chicken. <laughs> Who <laughs> and, doesn't? Um, That's right. And uh, they have one. They built one close to me a couple of years ago. But before that, there was um, uh, that was one of the highlights of, of uh, driving to Cocoa Fest. Is there's a basically a rest stop uh, in Virginia that. Um, was just about far enough away that I'd, you know, leave in the morning and um, be about lunchtime. <laughs> and so I'd stop there and get me some Popeyes. And mm. it was like, it's just something that, uh, you know, I looked forward to yeah. almost as much as a fest itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, my zealous use of a DCM5 modem back in the day uh, got landed me my first job at Popeyes. Very funny. So it sounds like, uh, Coca Fest is important to all of us for maybe be more than just the opportunity to uh, to show our wares or or to even to buy others wares uh, or even to be in the auction. Uh, there's a people aspect to it, and uh, yes. and even beyond the people per se, as in the individuals that are there, there's a a 
personal uh, component to the just the you know, the, the travel. You know, whether it's a road trip, going to the Chicago area. Some people like that more than uh, some people may not like Chicago. Other people will. The different part of this country is some. It's a part of the country probably everybody should see at least once. And so that is that is a as a plus. But just the fact you take your time and go and do something that's a little silly and maybe just for you. <laughs> but right. um, it's invigorating in that sense, liberating, whatever. So definitely enjoyable. Yeah, I, I, everyone should go to Coco Fest. If you're, you know, what's the thing? If you're within, is it four or five hours now? We've made the mandate. You have to be there. Uh, it keeps growing. And I think it's up to six now. That's yeah, <laughs> six, seven. You just got to come. It is just, it's, it's, it's a riot. You should try to come <laughs> at least once in your lifetime. That's right. It's like the, uh, the you know, the pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj. You got to. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, I'm laughing because uh, earlier we recorded uh, the, um, the the roundtable, and uh, I cited exactly that in our yeah. best roundtable. <laughs> funny. Just be there. Yeah, yeah. get there by hook or by crook or something like that. Just get there. Make it your own. Make it your own. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, then I guess we'll call this one... Uh, uh, this discussion to a close and um, we'll take another break and be back with the rest of the show. Mr. Turtle, how many megabytes does it take to get a good deal on a cocoa hard drive? I have no idea. Ask Mr. Owl. Mr. Owl, how many megabytes does it take to get a good deal on a cocoa hard drive? Oh, let's find out. 10, 15, 20. Oh, it's 20. Looking for a hard drive for your color computer? Ask the Owl. <laughs> Owlware is the leading provider of hard drive systems for color computers, offering 20, 40, and 80 megabyte hard drive systems. Our complete hard drive packages include the hard drive, case with fan, SCSI controller, LR Owl interface, and software. Fully assembled and tested. 20 megabytes, just $495. 40 megabytes, just $609. And an amazing 80 megabytes for just $875. All our drives come with a one-year limited warranty and parts and labor are covered for 90 days. We've earned our place in the market by providing products you can be proud of. Customer service, quality products, and sound design. For all of your hard and floppy drive needs, remember to ask the owl. <laughs> Owlware, located in Mertztown, Pennsylvania. All right. Welcome, everyone, to uh, a neat feature we're having this month. We're going to have a, uh, a roundtable discussion on the topic of um, well, Cocoa Fest, and uh, I guess sort of a what to expect from Cocoa Fest, or what are you expecting from Cocoa Fest, and what kind of uh, tips or tricks to, can you pass on to to other listeners or to everyone else on the show here? <laughs> Neil and Boise uh, have each had other commitments. Uh, I am joined with uh, Myro, my uh, lovely co-host. <laughs> Joining us as well, uh, we've got uh, a few members from the community. We've got uh, uh, Carlos Camacho, who was uh, posting his own testament uh, to uh, the, the joys of Coca Fest on the Facebook recently. <laughs> we've got uh, Ron Klein, and uh, we've got uh, kind of a new member of the community, Steve Stroh, not to be confused with Steve, Steve Stroh or Steve Strowbridge. This is a uh, 
another fellow whose name uh, uh, looks more like the the beer. <laughs> so, um, welcome everyone. Everyone doing well? Yes, thank you. <laughs> good, good. As we all know, uh, hopefully everyone listening knows that Cocoa Fest is a a long running gathering of cocoa nuts, uh, cocoa uh, people. Stretches back to um, the very early 90s. It happens every year uh, in the spring in the Chicago area. Uh, lately, it's been in uh, Lombard, and we get together for a weekend of um, fun and auctioneering and other things, <laughs> kind of hang out with the other people that are crazy in the same way we are. <laughs> so, well, I don't know, where should we take it from here? Anybody got any th- overall thoughts on Cocoa Fest that they'd like to, to share as an introduction? This is, this is Steve, and this will be my first Cocoa Fest. I'm coming into the Cocoa Retro Cocoa Hobby, pretty much brand new after, what, a 30-year gap or so. And I'm looking forward to seeing all the cool hardware um, that is, has been developed over the years to make Cocoa use uh, a lot less painful. I remember vividly how problematic the disk drives were and floppy controller. And so being able to just use a SD card and <laughs> call it good. And also my, my favorite enhancement uh, that's evolved over time is uh, the PS2 keyboard interface. So my hands over <laughs> the last 50 years have been trained to the IBM keyboard layout. I don't think I could, you know, go back to anything other. So I'm looking forward to hooking up a PS2 keyboard to my Coco that's arriving from Cloud9 sometime in the next few weeks. It is funny how... Uh... You know, of course, the the main the main keys are all sort of in the same place, but you know the the things like where's the semicolon or or where's the quote quotation marks, uh, it's just enough differences. It does make it difficult to go back and forth between. Uh, yeah, that's the a two big. You spend a weekend <laughs> coding on the cocoa and then go back to work, and you keep uh, trying to hit shift two for quote. Yeah. <laughs> I've had other typewriters that had the extra parts who kind of match more like what the Cocoa has. So there must have been some sort of standard or semi-standard or whatever that somebody was following there, but I don't know what it was. Maybe the bought it typewriter or something like that. Well, so, so Steve, hopefully uh, you'll see um, a lot of neat things on display. Hopefully our vendors will be there in force. I think they will be for the most part. Uh, certainly, um, uh, Mark Marlette with Cloud9 will be there. I'm not sure if there'll be a vendor selling the Cocoa SDC or not. At least there'll be some on display that you can get a handle on, uh, <laughs> see how they use, that sort of thing. That's another issue that um, is I'm looking forward to is getting up to speed because listening to the Cocoa Crew podcast, there's an awful lot of terminology that's flung around pretty casually, like the Cocoa SDC. and us new guys have no idea what you're referring to lots of times until you dive into the show notes and figure it out and, you know, getting up to speed. But that'll be fun to see all this stuff because uh, the community is going to be apparently very well represented. I, I like your terminology, John, of uh, the Cocoa New Year and how it kind of starts <laughs> the whole season for you guys. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Definitely. It is fun. It's um, rejuvenation. Uh, it's kind of cool just to see what other people are doing and kind of get 
inspired by what other people are done and, and uh, what people are talking about doing and that sort of thing. So it's good for that. So Carlos, you you joined us last year. Have you got any, uh, any uh, commentary or thoughts on uh, on Coca Fest and um, you know whether it's worth going and and why? Yeah, sure. Um, back when I first had my cocoa, uh, you know, there was Rainbow Fest all the time, and uh, I guess I was just too young to you know really appreciate going to one of those. Um, later on, when I joined the world of Amiga, I was uh, constantly going to the various Commodore shows and then the Mac worlds when I got into that. Um, so I got back into the Cocoa about three years ago or so. I found out about Cocoa Fest through uh, the Facebook group. Um, so I was kind of on the fence of whether or not I wanted to go. Um, I'm on the East Coast, so I um, wasn't sure um, if my schedule was going to allow me to get out there. And the other thing that kind of was holding me back was that um, I knew the people's names through the Facebook group, but like I really didn't really know anyone at, that would be going to the show, except for perhaps just people that really stood out in the community, like uh, John or Neil. Right. Or Boise, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I ended up going, and I had a really good time. I'm usually a pretty shy person, so it was a little bit awkward at times to go to uh, someone's table because I, was, I wasn't quite sure um, if they were just sitting there or they were selling something or – uh, what exactly they were, you know, doing at their table. Some some people are really good about uh, setting up their tables so you know exactly, you know, w- what they're about when you go to their tables. But some people wasn't quite sure how to approach them or what to talk about. But in terms of uh, the lecturers, they they were really good, uh, especially for seeing the products that are sometimes mentioned in the different social media sites. To actually be able to touch them and look at them and uh, play around with them, uh, that was quite quite interesting, I think. Uh, now, almost a year has passed since that Cocoa Fest, uh, the first one I went to. So um, I think that I know many more people in the community. So um, I'll actually be able to really put the names together with the faces this next show. Um, I'm also going to have a, a table myself. So I'll try to sell some of the extra stock I have. So I'm quite looking forward to it. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, I posted on Facebook the other day trying to get people um, to join the show uh, that, you know, are on the fence or like Steve, you know, this will be their first year to go. Um, It would be kind of nice to have some kind of lecture every year uh, run by some veteran of the community calling, called something like catching up with the cocoa, you know? So like for me, uh, as, as Steve also mentioned, you know, we were cocoa users back in the day, but, you know, we've been we have been away for such a long time. So um, there were so many things we weren't aware of. So kind of be nice for kind of a kind of Coco 101, you know, bring it, people up to speed on what's going on and, and so forth. Sure, that's a good idea. Yeah, it is a good idea. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Carlos mentioned, um, you know, people sitting at their table and you're not quite sure what they're doing. <laughs> and so uh, that is kind of a, a little phenomenon that people might not be expecting. but over the years, it uh, became you know, there for a while. Things have started to dwindle quite a bit. I think we've revitalized the community quite a bit the past couple of years. But we had gotten aware that the people coming to fest were sort of hardcore old timers to some degree, and it become it had become customary for some people to uh, to get a table, 
mostly for the for the purpose of funneling the money to to the club to make sure that the fest would continue <laughs> and also the secondary purpose of guaranteeing themselves a chair to sit in uh, while the festivities happened <laughs> and so you do get people who get tables that aren't really vendors or even exhibitors per se they're more like supporters of the club that that want to be sure they have a place to sit <laughs> so <laughs> Um, that makes sense. So, so don't be surprised if you see that. Um, the, now generally, those are still friendly folks, and they want to talk about the cocoa and whatever. And if they don't have a project to talk about, maybe you just tell them about your project. <laughs> um, there's certainly uh, people who walk like around. And that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's well, safe to say that uh, the majority of of cocoaers would be considered introverts. So. Uh, uh, yeah, you do have to learn to set shyness aside. I had the same kind of experience when I, I went to my first Cocoa Fest, and uh, uh, but it was much better going the second one. But we've, there's, like John said, there's more people coming now. Uh, it kind of gets crowded, and uh, it's just best to, to lead in and say, hey, where can I – I got a question about this, or who knows about this, and that will get you in the flow pretty quickly. Yeah, no. I don't, I don't I think that's it's a good problem to have. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think it was Mike's first fest, but it might have been the first time he had a table. Uh, but I inadvertently almost knocked his table over. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll try not to knock anyone's table over in the process, whether you're new or not. <laughs> Except for other people who are selling uh, based products. Well, you know, uh, sound, sound options are, are <laughs> the enemy. Or no. I found that the uh, most fun I had at the show was actually uh, during the auction just to see uh, people who I guess were longtime friends, rivals, uh, maybe even family members for all I knew, uh, going after each other and trying to buy, you know, everything that was thrown out in the auction, whether they really needed it or most likely they probably didn't because they probably have 10 of those items as it was, but they just didn't want to see the other guy win. It is sure. fun. It is fun. Yeah. The auction is definitely the highlight of the show. Um, it's uh, the most fun and the most, um, you know, so it's, it's an opportunity to kind of, uh, it's almost like a game. You play against the people, <laughs> uh, there's a certain amount of teasing or st struggling or whatever happening there. And like you say, you do have some longtime rivalries that play out in the auctions. Um, and, you know, that is how the show gets funded ultimately. Uh, so uh, you get some people who um, get extra generous in the auction. Um in the name of helping the club. <laughs> so, and also, of course, you you know, where else other than the people coming to Cocoa Fest will you find the rarest of the rare cocoa items in the world uh, and somebody who has enough of them that they're willing to donate, donate it to an auction, <laughs> right? So you do see some pretty cool stuff show up once in a while. Um, and sometimes you see some, uh, I suppose, some dot matrix printers that really no one wants, and they actually want to pay you to take it from them. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> you do. Um, you do see some printer show up sometimes. Most people have at least accepted that the dot matrix ones are, or other impact ones are not too exciting uh, these days. So you don't see a lot of those. You do still. You, you still see a fair number of the CGP two twenties, which are the inkjet printers, uh, which are all but useless because you can't get ink and haven't been able to for 20 years or whatever. But uh, somebody will tell you there's a 6809 processor in there, and so <laughs> some people will want one just so they can hack it or whatever. 
<laughs> I'd love to see a project that hacks that printer. I haven't seen one yet. That's pretty much it. You know, you, you see some amount of printers there, but uh, most people avoid them, like you say. So I don't know. We, as a, If you're a fan of the show, you know, we did a, a show on printers kind of early on, and it became one of the most popular shows. <laughs> so people, people say they don't want them, but they don't totally want to give them up either. <laughs> So, that begs the question. So is the main way of buying stuff at Cocoa Fest the auction, or are there vendors there that sell their own individual stuff? Both. So I don't know about the main way. I mean, that's probably the, the thing that the most people participate in is the auction. Um, you do get vendors um, like Mark Marlett uh, with his Cloud9 um, is constantly more of a vendor presence than some. Uh, other people are, are less vendors and more like exhibitors, uh, and you get a few people that are sort of in between. They're, they're like they're really like an exhibitor, but they have a few old items they brought as extras or whatever. So I don't know. It just kind of depends. You have to walk around and <laughs> and yeah. I bought um, I bought a bunch of things from Cloud Nine, which was awesome because uh, their prices were great, and I'm a sucker for books. So you put books in front of me, I'm going to buy them. Um, <laughs> Uh, some items from a guy in the back of his van, which turned out to be <laughs> legitimate. Um, I bought uh, a product from uh, made by some cheap Canadian labor uh, and some other little trinkets. That's cool. Yeah, also, this, uh, something you'll see sometimes is um, uh, is a practice that kind of evolved out of uh, the, the dwindling Cocoa Fest. It may not be as appropriate now that it, we've been had a little bit of a, a revival, but you'll still see a few booths that are that are more like uh, you know wives of the Glenside members that are there kind of to support things and kind of, I don't know, maybe they would normally sit at a craft show or something, and instead they've come to Cocoa Fest. <laughs> and so you can buy like, knitted items or cross-stitched items or, or a little jewelry or whatever. Dan Kelly usually sells his art there too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're not, not, not really my favorite parts of the show, but uh, they are there and, uh, you know, don't be surprised to see them, I guess. John, with more people joining the show, potential more vendors every year, have they considered perhaps putting those folks over in the kind of cafeteria uh, type of area? where that there's, they usually put donuts over there? Um, I don't know if they've really considered that or not. They probably should. Um, the truth be told that the guy who lays out the table design is married to one of the people who <laughs> who, uh, who uh, runs one of those booths, and uh, I'm not sure gotcha. uh, he's ready to tell her she has to go sit in the cafeteria. <laughs> um, I don't know. Probably shouldn't say that. Um well, if we keep but, this up, they may have to look at a venue change. So getting more right, space would be helpful. It's starting to get crowded, and that's a good problem to have. It is a good problem to have. Um, I think we looked at it a little bit maybe this year, but not too seriously. If it continues to grow, we might have to look at another spot. So or, if we do that, maybe things will change. Or if John continues to knock over tables, we'll definitely need a bigger spot. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. But uh, I try not to. <laughs> I try not to crawl under anyone else's table. <laughs> At least not until the the, the uh, sing along. Um, <laughs> I guess that's one more thing to mention that uh, is a, a bit of a tradition. 
not not popular with all of us, but it's become a, a thing to have uh, Saturday night uh, music jam or sing along. Kind of after the show's closed, people get together. Well, people get together and they just talk and and you know whatever discuss things, and that part's great. And then some of the people you know pull out their musical instruments or whatever and and play music and sing and whatever. I'm not sure that's the most entertaining part, but some people seem to enjoy it. <laughs> I don't know. Do you, you want to say anything about that, Mike? <laughs> yeah, well, I think Saturday evening is, for the most part, is unstructured. And that is probably, that's a great time because a lot of people that are, you know, like Mark Marlette, he's busy all day with uh, selling and doing repairs and things like that. And that's his opportunity to get out from behind his table and actually see what everybody else has got, chat with people. So that is a good time. You get to mill around and have total run of the place. Sure, sure. That was an interesting thing that um, I kind of came out uh, was that there are people that come to Cocoa Fest specifically to uh, bring their broken pieces and get them repaired there. That was new revelation. You, you old timers, you know, just take a lot of this kind of stuff for granted, and yet, you know, there's there's these fantastic opportunities that would probably draw more people in and say, well, you know, it's it's worth it driving, you know, six hours to go to Cocoa Fest if I could get my blank repaired. So, you know, there's there's an awful lot of expertise out there that kind of is hidden gems like um, Cloud9's, you know, repair service, which I just found out about, you know, in my research the last few weeks. Yeah. yeah, I think um, it's an opportunity not only to get the, your uh, items fixed, but also upgraded. Um, so if you wanted to get a Hitachi uh, CPU installed in your Coco, uh, but that's kind of a difficult thing because it might not be socketed. Um, so that's a great opportunity to have that uh, upgraded. Or if you wanted to get a Times uh, label put on your computer to upgrade it that way to triple the <laughs> value of it, would be another opportunity as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I'll be selling those labels for three hundred dollars. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, no, there definitely are folks to show up, and um, um, that uh, are you know, as you say, um, vendors or whatever that will do repairs. So that's cool. Yeah, these are all um, great suggestions, Steve. It's uh, that's why we invited you. It's good to get a newcomer's perspective on this because we, you know, we we forget and lose track of someone new coming into the hobby after so many years, even though we did it ourselves. Uh, John, are you, given that this is a podcast and you've got lots of uh, willing participants there to talk, are you going to be actually recording a, you know, anything for the Coco Crew at Coco Fest? Or are you just too oh. busy? We actually do have a segment on Sunday that's supposed to be a, a live recording session. I don't think we've worked out much of anything, but probably just be, you know, a, a roundtable discussion from the show floor. No particular topic other than how great it was to come to Coco Fest, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a recap yeah. of the day, yeah. Or three years of, of the Coco crew, what do you think? <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. One thing, I, I, I really enjoy those little intros um you know the sponsorship or whatever you call it the little voiceovers that uh, individuals do and you know it seems to me that's a perfect opportunity that you could get your you know 15 seconds of fame uh recording a bunch of voiceovers at coco fest you just have a recorder set up and let people walk up and have a placard there and say you know 
this is the Cocoa Crew I am. This is my experience, and this is the Cocoa Crew podcast. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll be doing that. I imagine uh, Steve Strawbridge will be doing that as well. <laughs> uh, so if, um, if you're looking for your 15 minutes of fame, <laughs> there you go. That's a lot of time, 15 minutes. <laughs> 15 seconds, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> your, your, your podcast is getting longer and longer, I'm afraid. <laughs> hey, I'm really? one of the ones that won't complain about that because I have a little bit of a commute, and that is I look forward to these, and that gets me by on quite a few days of driving, so I'm very happy to have them longer. A lot of, a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, as, as a newcomer, I, I've actually gone back I've only, I haven't gotten through the entire three years worth yet, but I, there are some that have been so informative that I've gone back and listened to them several times and made notes. John, for example, you mentioned this uh, cartridge that you found uh, that was for amateur radio, packet radio use that uh, yeah. plugged into the side of a cocoa. And I want to, you know, dig back into that and a few and a few other things. And your discussion about WeFax a few years ago and things like that. So those, I find the, you know, the, the back library of the Cocoa Crew to be invaluable for somebody who's coming into it cold. Well, that's good to hear. Um, I'm pretty happy with it, <laughs> with it, some of the topics we've discussed. It's uh, hard to go back on everything uh, sometimes, but, um, you know. <laughs> you, you, did, you did exactly the right thing for us by providing the, well, whoever does the show notes, I don't know if it's you, but those show notes are fantastic. And then so, you know, stuff that's, you know, you can't quite get the spelling out of hearing it in audio. You've got the show notes to refer to. So I'm I'm just delighted. And and quite frankly, the reason that I'm coming to Coco Fest was the very welcoming nature of the Coco Crew podcast. You know, it, I just felt like I was going to find a, a very welcoming, interested community that loves to share and, you know, loves to play with Cocos. So uh, that's that's why I decided to come to Coco Fest this year on such short notice. Well, well that's a gr- great thing to hear. Yes, it is. Um, like I said, we um, we really uh, get a lot out of Coco Fest ourselves. And podcast was uh, started um, for the most part to help promote Coco Fest and get people to, to come to it and uh, be part of the hobby. Uh, we really do feel like uh, to be um, major parts of the hobby or, or are serious about the hobby that coming to Cocoa Fest is kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the the obligation to go to Mecca uh, for our uh, for our Islamic brothers uh, and sisters that uh, it's uh, just something we think you should do. And while while the God commands you to go once in your life uh, to Mecca, we we want you to come every year to Cocoa Fest. So. <laughs> I think it's a pilgrimage analogy, then I would suggest that uh, there should be some one week of uh, no cocoa fasting. <laughs> yeah, that would be funny. No cocoa for a week before cocoa fest. Right. <laughs> Everybody will be chopping up bits to get in. <laughs> well, I, I, I did get the message that if you're interested in retro cocoa, that you definitely need to come to cocoa fest at least once, and, and two other parts of my life. Uh, I used to work in the uh, avionics industry and Oshkosh, the Oshkosh uh, annual event in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, Air Air Venture, I think that's it's called. Uh, That was a, you know, got to do that once in your life. And and the other one is uh, the 
now misnamed Dayton Hamvention for ham, <laughs> ham radio operators in the U.S. You know, sure. there's going to be a, a awesome 3D flight simulator this year at the Cocoa Fest. I just made that up, but there should be. <laughs> well, there be. might be a demo of um, P-51 Mustang uh, uh, playing head-to-head uh, -head over the Internet, maybe uh, oh. using one of those things that uh, um, that uh, Alan Huffman's been uh, talking about. That'd be kind of cool. Or David Ladd. He's been doing some of that same sort of thing. <laughs> so we could have like a 50 people against 50 people battle? Well, I think it's all one-to-one, -one, but, you know, <laughs> if you could set up 25 pairs, uh, <laughs> that'd be pretty yeah, Kind of like a Sweet 16 then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. John, you occasionally make reference to a event in the fall, Tandy something, Tandy Assembly, I think it's called. Tandy uh, Assembly, yeah. There's apparently some crossover between that and Cocoa Fest. Could you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> I, I haven't quite teased that out from looking. Tandy Assembly was um, something that we kind of thought of. Um, I think uh, I probably get blamed for for uh, whining about it the most for for a while that we should have um, that once a year for Cocoa Fest just wasn't enough, and that we should have another event maybe in the fall because um, along with Cocoa Fest in the spring, that there was a problem for a couple of years where. Uh, all the VCF uh, events were all basically at the same time as Cocoa Fest, and even if they were slightly far enough apart to go to two or three of them, it still just wore, wore you out, and then the whole rest of the year you got nothing. So, kind of politics when for a while we're trying to put feelers out to to to, to um, Mike and uh, Neil and some others, um, you know what the appetite was for maybe setting up another event, but it's kind of we needed a, a bit of a nexus. Of you know who's going to come? Why why would you want to come? The idea of two Coca Fests, I wasn't too sure about uh, having enough people or whatever to be interested. And so then um, the uh, Trash Talk podcast came along, which covers the Z80 based TRS 80s, and um, kind of it you know hit hit me or hit us that well Tandy eh, that's kind of enough to kind of bring in uh, a big enough set of folks that we thought would be viable. And I reached out to um, the uh, trash talkers, and they thought it was a good idea too. So uh, we've gotten together and uh, organized an event. The event, um, first event, was last year in uh, Chillicothe, Ohio. Mike Rowan is uh, the president of our organization, <laughs> and uh, um, we uh, had the event and uh, had um, eighty some people show up or whatever. I think it was a big success. And uh, we're we're in the means in, in the middle of um, planning for our next event. So hopefully this fall we'll have another event as well. And in fact, we're kind of already on the schedule, I guess, for that. So that'll be in Springfield, Ohio. Uh, Mike probably knows the dates. I don't know the date. What would you say um, would be the breakdown of platform of the attendees? Like, for example, was it 60% of uh, attendees um, were mainly using the Cocoa? I know. Well, many people have more than, you know, maybe just a Coca. They might have a, a, a TRS-80 Model 1 or something like that. But um, did you get a sense for that? Yeah, I, I thought know. it was kind of, I thought it was pretty balanced. I mean, we had several Cocoers. Mm -hmm. uh, we had uh, a lot of Tandy 1000 and uh, Intel-based, and uh, as well as a lot of Z80s. So, uh, you know, I don't know number-wise how, how you slice it up, but it was a good balance. I didn't feel like it was lopsided to one platform over any of the others. 
Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think it was balanced out pretty well. I think maybe the, the, the Tandy 1000s were not as well represented as the others, but that may just be a building kind of thing. Well, we didn't have any organizers uh, with deep ties to the Tandy 1000. But um, as far as Coco versus Z80, I'm not sure. It might have been a 60-40 thing, but it, uh, it's not too far away from half uh, <laughs> or whatever. So um, I don't know. I, th- I thought it was a pretty, pretty good event. So anyway, so there's your, your six-month uh, hit. <laughs> if you can't go a whole year without uh, uh, attending a vintage event or a Tandy event, then uh, that's a good one to go to. Another question is, um, how well is the COCO represented at the Vintage Computer Festivals? Um, I've only attended uh, the very first one here in the Seattle area um, a couple months ago, and there was one vendor there, which which is which was enough to pique my curiosity. And then, boy, was this a huge rabbit hole to fall down? <laughs> yeah. Well, so. The times I've been to VCF East, either I was the only Coco-specific person there, or there may have been somebody else who had a Coco, but it was kind of part of another display. I know last year they, they had uh, kind of a, uh, a theme that, that they kind of had a, a Tandy table versus an Apple table versus a Commodore table, and the Tandy table was done by the Trash Talkers, and I think they incorporated the color computer and some other stuff in there. But as, but as far as just regular display stuff you know not a lot maybe one or two people the uh, vcf southeast in atlanta kind of the same story they usually have one or two but um i think when i've been there i've been one of the ones <laughs> so not a huge amount of tandy stuff or the cocoa stuff but that really just gives you lots of opportunity to display for yourself steve well that's right exactly <laughs> so wave, wave your tandy colors yeah, I, I went to my first VCF uh, show, actually Midwest, last year, and um, there was a little bit of uh, Coco representation there. I know Neil was there. He had a few things. John Strong was there. Um, yeah. Jim Brain Jim Brain had a little bit. Mike, I can't remember. Were you there also? Yeah, I was there. I, I didn't have a table. Yeah, I just right. kind of uh, went around the right. table. <laughs> yeah, that was my first one. I saw a lot of Atari, a lot of Commodore, Apple. Um, one TI that I could see. Um, it was a big show. I'm glad I went. Um, I do dabble with a few other types of retro computers, though the Coco is my favorite. And um, it was good to kind of look at some of the other equipment and some of the other things people are doing. I, I thought it was a pretty good experience. But yeah, I would agree there wasn't a huge representation of uh, color computer stuff there. So yeah, you get a mix. Um, VCF Midwest, uh, obviously, you're going to have a lot of the Glenside folks are kind of there in the area. Uh, so you usually get some Coco stuff there, which also there's some sort of big TI-99 club in that area, which is probably why you get some TI stuff there. <laughs> um, the VCF events are nice, but uh, uh, you kind of have to kind of view them in terms of uh, the broader vintage computing interest. Um, not necessarily going to satisfy a lot of Coco stuff there. But definitely good places to get, get ideas. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a whole lot of experience going to the shows. I My first uh, show of any type like this was Coco Fest for 2016. And, and John and Mike, that was because of you guys. I mean, that meal. Um, I actually started unboxing some stuff I've had in storage for years, about three, four years ago. And I went back through some old emails and I saw 
I, I've actually dealt with Mark and Boise going back many, many years, but it had been a long time since I had spoken to anybody. And I reached out to an email looking for a couple things, and I was surprised to see that they were still doing stuff. And it was great to talk to them again. And then I kind of started to research it, and that's how I started to get back into the retro computing hobby with the Coco. So, yeah, you guys were the ones that got me to go to that first fest. And it's strange because I lived in the Chicagoland area my entire life, and I never went to any of them. And I even worked for Radio Shack. Actually, I worked for a Tandy Color, uh, Tandy Computer Center for about a year and a half. And I just never went to any of them. So I, I think it's a great experience. And Steve, with you going uh, for the first time, I, I agree. When I walked in, it was a, a little overwhelming because I didn't know who to who to talk to or who to gravitate to. And I just kind of walked around, cased the room a little bit. But I found that really everybody was very welcoming. Um, now I find when I go to these shows, even though I've only been to a few of them, it, it is so great to interact and just catch up with people and this and that. Um, so that that's what's one of the best things about the show is just getting caught up with some people. I'm looking forward to the day when the show is so big that there's going to be a corner with a uh, recreated Radio Shack. So we just walk in and boom, instant childhood memories. <laughs> <laughs> it would be cool. Well, you got the you got the TV shows now that are grabbing all the props, I guess, huh? Right. You got yeah. Your, you know, <laughs> young Sheldon and all this other stuff, and yeah, I wish I would have kind of pilfered a few things when I left uh, Radio Shack years ago. Well, I I plan on going to the show again. I had a great time. Um, I plan on uh, I I will. Brett was nice enough. Brett Gordon, who's uh, in the community as well, he was nice enough to uh, grab me a table. I wasn't going to get one, but. Um, at my very first show, he was nice enough to grab a table, and uh, I'll I'll be bringing some stuff there. But it's uh, you know it's it's hard. The great thing about the show is there's so much to see, and you guys have your you know the talking seminars and things like that. And it's hard to find uh, the balance because you want to attend those, yet you want to walk around and meet with people, yet you don't want to tie up someone's time too much where others can interact with that person. So. I just, you know, there's just so much to do, and Tandy Assembly was a big continuation of that, and in many ways, I thought there was even more to do there, not to take anything away from Coco Fest. Um, <laughs> Coco Fest obviously just focuses strictly on the Coco, where, you know, the other shows seem like it, it brought so much more in, but either way, whatever show you can get to, and if you're fortunate enough to get to both, I would say go to both. <laughs> cool. Yeah, on the um, so many things to do uh, side. Um we kind of took that feedback to heart, uh, should say, and um, uh, we try to accommodate the schedule. There's a, a little bit more break time, a few less presentations than previous years. So hopefully that'll be uh, satisfactory. <laughs> Part of why we we include a booth tour at the beginning this year is to, to kind of expose everyone to kind of what's out there. Uh, so hopefully uh, everyone gets a, an idea of what booths are there. We also have provided a um, a lightning talk uh, session, uh, which is um, intended for people that haven't pre haven't really prepared a big talk, but kind of want to get an, they want to discuss an idea or invite people to look at their exhibit or something like that. You can just sort of stand up for uh, five minutes or less or whatever and just say, "Hey, I'm here. I'm Joe, and I've got." Um, you know, I've got a, a setup where I use my cocoa to blow to grow plants in my basement, uh, or you know, whatever you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Um, hopefully that'll take care of uh, some amount of uh, people's um, variety of interest in knowing what to do and, and uh, how to spend their time. Carlos, what, what about you? You got any final thoughts? Um, yeah, if there's somebody out there that's listening and thinking about going, um, not sure, on the fence, just go, man. You're going to have a blast. Um, I, I think uh, uh, if you go, um, it's going to get you uh, even more embedded with this community. You're going to really get to know the people and, you know, what drives their, you know, inspirations and their creativity and creating new products. Um, and to me, it's like the, the more people we get involved with the Cocoa Fest, uh, the more people we bring in, uh, the richer the platform becomes. And, you know, it, it might be that we're going to be picking up people that moved away from the Cocoa in the past, or it could be that we're picking up people who uh, grew up with a Commodore 64 or Atari or a TI uh, or a Timex uh, and, you know, have discovered the Cocoa and want to add the Cocoa to their collection. So, sure. um, yeah, so I think it's a great, it's a great thing. And we can't thank enough, uh, all the people who are involved in, in running this show. It, it's a great event. Yep. And, uh, yeah, if you do come to Coca Fest, I can vouch for Carlos as a, um, as a meal buddy. Uh, we had lunch uh, together, uh, last, uh, last year is a fine companion. So don't be shy if you're looking for somebody to have lunch with, uh, <laughs> Um, he, may, he may even remember where that sandwich place was, which was pretty awesome, Ooh, as I recall. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Steve, you're the newbie. Do you have any questions that remain unanswered or any uh, anything you'd like to, to add on? Um, yeah, one, one point that uh, kind of gets touched on but doesn't get elaborated much is that there, it, there was um, some mention of this at the uh, Vintage Computer Festival here in Seattle a couple months ago that the retro computer hobby seems to be growing a bit and new people are coming in. And we I definitely saw that in, this, in the Seattle event. And one of the things that speaks to me about the Coco is that even though it's still of that vintage when, you know, computers were relatively simple back then, it, the, the Coco, more than any of the other computers, with possibly the exception of the Amiga, was the most um, capable and expandable. You know, it, it, that 6809 has so much power, you know, for an 8-bit processor. And, you know, the, I, what, blew, what blew me away was um, that OS 9 had been open sourced into Nitrous 9. And... That that just fascinates me, and I'm going to dive deep into that when I get my Coco 3 in another few weeks from Cloud 9. That's that's going to be my main emphasis of learning all of that, because OS 9 was a new development when I phased out of the Coco back in the day. So, you know, I'm it's all those things. You know, it's it's just fun to have a learning curve again. Um, you know, to get up to speed and with this cool thing that'll feel familiar but new at the same time so I'm, I'm looking forward really looking forward to this you know visiting coco fest and hopefully it'll become an annual habit like you guys cool <laughs> well that sounds great um hopefully it, uh, the, the bug will bite you and uh, you'll uh, continue to come i hope you enjoy it for sure mike any thoughts no other than uh, i'm looking forward to seeing all of you at coco fest and uh if you're out there listening uh, you should definitely make the effort. Uh, you won't be sorry. You know, it's a, it's a, like a vacation from the rest of your normal life, and that's that's yeah. why it's our Coco New Year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Well, um, I think that sums it up really well. We definitely want everyone to come out and meet new friends. Um, the more people that show up, the more it seems to invigorate the hobby. Uh, so if you want a, a um, full, of, a full of life hobby, uh, then come be part of it. <laughs> Support your vendors, pick up products that interest you, talk about the problems you've had or things you want to solve, or just talk about the projects you're doing or how you spent two weeks reading through the old basic manuals, learning how to program. <laughs> all of it's fun. All of it's fun. Uh, we all want to hear about it. I think that probably sums it up. Everyone, thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, Steve Stroh, Ron Klein, Carlos Camacho, Horst Myro. So keep cocoing and uh, be retro forever. There are many great word processors for the color computer, but there's only one that gives you the simplicity of a point-and-click interface. It's Max 10 from Colorware. Max 10 is a true WYSIWYG word processor. WYSIWYG means what you see is what you get. What you see on your screen is what you will see on your printer. Combine multiple fonts. Incorporate pictures into your documents. Format in columns, making newsletters a joy to work with. Max 10 is so easy, it's almost completely intuitive. Max 10 from Colorware, the word processing program you've been waiting for. Good morning, Interbank Corporation. What if you held absolute power in your hand? The Nebulous Project will radically change the way we protect national interests. What if that power were floating 1,200 miles above us in space? Lift off. Mr. Johnson, I have a secure line in room B. Johnson here, go ahead. What if that power was taken from you and used against you? What do you mean the code book has been stolen? What if only one person could reclaim that power? The Interbank Incident. Rated Coco 17. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the tech segment of the Coco Crew Podcast. Um, as usual, this is uh, your helpful and friendly host, John Linville, <laughs> uh, guiding you through the, uh, the wonders of the Tandy Color Computer. <laughs> so the topic for this month is, uh, I think it's relatively topical. Every time I think nobody's using the Cocoa Ones, uh, I turn around and I start to see a bunch of people asking about, well, how do I do this or that, or how do I get composite video out of the Cocoa One? Seems to be a big one I've seen several times lately. As many people know, uh, Ed Snyder kind of came out of nowhere a couple of years ago and one of his first big uh, projects before becoming the champion of the... Uh, the Coco STC was um, doing uh, composite video outputs uh, modifications for the uh, for the Coco twos and then um, also for the MC tens. So the thing is uh, that those don't work for the Coco one. Uh, the Coco one video circuit is a little bit different, and uh, so the uh, you need to do something a little different. Actually, it turns out to be something a little easier, uh, as we're going to discuss. Uh, to get composite video output on a Coco One, not just to the Coco One, this also applies to the uh, TDP One Hundred, or um, which uh, don't tell anybody, but the TDP One Hundred, it really is just a Coco One, slightly different case. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, just in case I go off the rails at all here, I, I, my experimentation I think is done specifically with an F-board Coco. Uh, it should apply to other ones, um, but just in case it doesn't work 
your mileage may vary, um, should still apply. Um, but <coughs> there, I just uh, had to put that uh, little warning out there, uh, disclaimer. <laughs> anyway, so what's the deal? All right, so as we probably know, um, the video output from the color computer, both one and two, comes from a chip from Motorola called the MC6847, which is a off-the-shelf graphics chip uh, with uh, capabilities that are both um, perhaps uh, interesting or remarkable or whatever for their time for something completely off the shelf and yet somewhat lacklustered and <laughs> um, questionable tasting colors, that sort of thing. Anyway, it is what it is. Hate it, love it, mostly love it, whatever. That's the chip we're using. Uh, the video outputs from that chip, the actual signals, um, are a little bit weird. There's um, a uh, what's called a luminance output, which uh, is called Y. I'm not sure why stands for why why stands for luminance, but it does. <laughs> anyway, um, and this is essentially a black and white TV signal, uh, including the the synchronization signals um, for getting a stable picture. And in fact, if you tap that signal with the proper um, amplification or whatever, you can get a black and white signal just from there uh, to drive a, a black and white television. Uh, so where does the color come from? Uh, so there's two other signals, which uh, I think are in a 6847 speaker called uh, Phi A and Phi B, which probably you know, is supposed to stand for Phase A or Phase B, but are also might also be called uh, R minus Y and B minus Y. Um, these are signals that are used to encode color versus luminance. <laughs> and so for those of you that don't know the history of color television, um, I'm not sure I really know the history of color television either, but I do know that back in the day when they were starting to come up with color television, it was kind of decreed that uh, color television broadcast needed to be compatible with black and white television broadcast. And so they had to figure out a way to make a color signal that at least sort of looked like a black and white signal. And so the way they did that is they essentially translated a black and white signal that then they colored. <laughs> Rather than sending color signals, they send black and white. They sort of draw a picture in black and white and then color it in later. Uh, not really later, really at the same time, separate signals, whatever. Um, it's not a really good uh, description. I did have a, um, a video I did some time back about uh, the 256 uh, color mode in the, uh, the Color Computer 3's Gimme chip. Uh, that exists for NTSC, um, uh, so-called so artifact signaling. Um, there's a um, better better description of how NTSC works there. Uh, if if for, if uh, if you can't find any better source. <laughs> anyway, so the so you end up with three signals that come out: um, a brightness or luminance signal, and then two color signals. So that one's predominantly for red-ish colors and one's predominantly for bluish colors. And the, uh, and the the black and white signal sort of stands in for greenish colors. So it's not RGB. It's kind of like RGB in the sense that there's three signals and they specify colors there, uh, but it's not exactly the same. So to take these signals and prepare them actually for tr actual television transmission, there's sort of a buddy chip for the 6847 known as the Motorola uh, MC1372. And it's designed so that uh, you feed it these this um, uh, Y, uh, Phase A, and Phase B signals. 
and you feed it um, an RF modulation circuit or an RF carrier um, signal that uh, then goes through this modulation circuit to create an actual little TV signal. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so the, the notion was that you'd actually drive a television right from there, and that's actually embedded in the RF modulator. In fact, one of these is in on RF, each of the RF, RF modulators for. Um, for the Coco 2s, which is one of the differences between the Coco 1 and the Coco 2. Now, why they didn't do this with the Coco 1, probably because they were looking to use off the shelf parts. Um, so, a somewhat interesting notion or note about the 1372 is if you essentially, um, well, if you, if you use a diode across the inputs to the RF um, uh, carrier wave uh, uh, parts of the circuit, uh, the inputs that are for the RF carrier wave, it basically creates a what creates what's called a broad, a baseband signal, uh, which is essentially the the basic signal that you're trying to transmit without putting it on the radio frequency signal. It's, well, yeah, RF signal. <laughs> um, and so um, you get the 1372 at that point. Then is just creating what we call commonly call a composite video signal. And this can be fed right into the yellow RCA jack on uh, the front of your TV or the back of your VCR. Back in the day, most of the TVs didn't have a composite. Um, some say it's that they don't have them today, although a lot of them do have composite video. That's just this is the green signal of the component video input. But anyway, the, for some period of time in the 90s, uh, uh, early 2000s, almost every TV had them. So it's still a handy way to do uh, video out from the Coco, and certainly easier to deal with than using the RF output. That's why we're here. That's what we're talking about, doing composite video <laughs> from, the, from the Coco 1. So turns out that the Coco 1 uses the 1372, as I've just sort of poorly described, and so you actually have a composite video signal being generated on the motherboard of your Coco One. There it is. It's already there. Now it's kind of weak, and uh, you know, in in some cases, apparently you can tap off of it directly and feed it to the right kind of composite video um, uh, output. You know, certain monitors or whatever, and some of them will actually work, but most of them won't because the signal's not really strong enough to drive it. Uh, so that composite video signal is right there, and as I said, I think Tandy did it that way because they were looking to use an off-the-shelf RF modulation circuit from Aztec. This is the UM1285-8 RF modulator, which happens to be the same part that was used um, in the Intellivision uh, and maybe some other um, uh, devices of the day. But so that the, the Aztec RF modulator just takes composite video um, and a, an audio signal and then it does the RF uh, carrier wave injection uh, just like the 1372 could have done but it didn't on the Coco 1 and then the Aztec does whatever and, and sends it out the back as a, as a radio frequency signal that can drive the TV through the antenna the way we all did it back in the day um, so <laughs> the major point to note here this the Coco 1 actually does generate a composite video signal it just then feeds it to an RF modulator and uh, never sticks it out the back of the of the machine so how do we get that composite video signal and make use of it like I said if you tap it directly on the motherboard that'll be 
too weak a signal for most cases. So where do we go from here? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I should know there are a number of places uh, um, that uh, you know, in the cocoa world or whatever that have um, references to various uh, circuit designs you can build. Some come from old rainbows or Marty Goodman or, or whoever. And uh, some of them work. Some, of, well, Most of them probably work. Uh, some of them uh, people have a tendency to misinterpret and try to use them in the wrong way <laughs> or whatever. Some of them other people do try to do but then still have trouble. They try to use it correctly but then have trouble building it or whatever. Um, so you can avoid that step pretty easily. So if you go out to eBay, if you type into the search, Atari 2600 Composite Mod. Uh, so that's that's literally you're looking for a composite video modification for the Atari 2600, uh, which hopefully you all know what that is from back in the day. What you tend to get is a, a lot of little circuit boards. A, you'll find also a lot of Atari 2600s <laughs> and such, which is not really what you want. You can just ignore those. But you will tend to find a lot of little circuit boards that are designed to do um, this, the kind of modification we're wanting to do the Coco, but to do it to an Atari 2600. It turns out the Atari 2600 also is generating a, um, a, a composite video signal that it then feeds to an RF modulator. Uh, and um, so not surprisingly, we want a similar circuit for a Coco as the ones that, that people use with the Atari 2600. And in fact, we want the identical circuit. Um, there's a couple of versions that you'll see. I'm reading kind of the headline or the the subjects, and they're, they're like Atari 2600 slash 7800 composite video mod upgrade kit. There's another one that you see several of Atari 2600 slash 7800 AV or A slash V composite RCA audio video mod kit. They're pretty simple little circuit boards. Uh, they'll show the picture. There'll be um, a transistor, a couple of resistors. Usually there'll be about four wires on one side and three wires on the other. Price is around ten to fifteen dollars. Uh, sometimes you see them cheaper. Sometimes you see them a little more expensive. If they get much more than fifteen dollars, you may want to look closer because there are some other uh, upgrade kits that are kind of a little more complicated, a little different. that tap in different places. If there's a, a chip at all, an IC at all, you don't want that one. Um, you just want to stick to the simple ones that have a transistor and a couple of resistors. Um, basically, you want four wires on, on the input side and three wires on the output side. <laughs> so what are we going to do with that? So you get one of these kits, and uh, it take you, you know, you order it, and take a week or so to come from through, uh, through the uh, amazing American package delivery system, <laughs> whichever vendor you've chosen there, UPS or whatever. So you open up your Coco. And you find uh, the RF modulator. Shouldn't be too hard to find. It's the, um, well, you ought to know where the RF output is on the back of the Coco anyway. If you find that, you'll see on the inside of the case that it connects to a big metal box with a, a cover. Um, otherwise, uh, just find the big metal box <laughs> with the cover. Sometimes there'll be more than one. Uh, some of the Coco motherboards had like a section that was RF shielded. I think you'll be able to tell the difference. This is the kind of rectangular box at the back with a with a port extending through the plastic. <laughs> How's that? Not too hard to figure out, I think. Now, if you position, if you take a look that uh, 
at the, uh, the this this tin can, shall we say, if you position it so that the port that goes to the outside is on your right hand side, uh, then there'll be four wires coming out of the out of the side or the bottom. Now the bottom of the um, or the side closest to you of that tin can that then come out and and then are soldered into the um, the cocoa motherboard. So there are four wires that are kind of exposed. These are what you're going to want to tap into. Now when you you probably get pretty minimal instructions um, with your AV mod kit, but basically what you'll find is there's um, there'll be a wire. Usually there'll be say uh, well the colors could could vary. You never know, but usually there'll be a power wire, um, maybe red, could be another color, but uh, there'll be a wire for power. There'll be um, uh, a wire for audio, a wire for video. The video is often yellow, may not be, but you know your mileage vary. And then of course there'll be a black wire for ground. So you have four wires: power, audio, video, and ground. Now, if you look uh, again at the side of the um, RF modulator, there are four wires. They're not exactly the same. <laughs> uh, gotcha. But if you look at them and you start from uh, the side closest to the back of the cocoa, so the closest to the to where the um, connector goes out of the back, uh, and start numbering from there right to left, so sort of backwards from the way you would read. Uh, the one closest to the back side is the video input uh, for the RF modulator. The second one is the supply voltage. The third one is the audio input. Uh, and then the fourth one is uh, is actually the channel select, so when you select between channels 3 and 4. And then uh, what's not really shown, or not really, doesn't look like a wire, but the, the case itself actually acts as a ground um, connection. So what you're going to do is, is basically match up the wires on that uh, AV module, uh, modification board to these uh, these signals. The lead closer to the back connects to the video input of the of the little circuit board that you're going to get from eBay. The next lead in from uh, is going to be the supply one, so that'll connect to you know probably the red wire or it could be any color, but the, the one for for the supply voltage. Then the uh, the third one, you know, starting from the back, the third one then will be the audio. It may be green, it may be a totally different color. It depends on which kit you get. <laughs> but that'll be the audio one. So, uh, uh, so like I said, video, power, audio, and then the, your black wire, or, and maybe again, the color, maybe something else. But uh, your ground wire uh, will actually need to be uh, soldered. Well, it could be soldered just directly to the case uh, of the RF modulator to get a ground connection. Now, if for some reason any of these don't quite map out, or are, don't seem very easy. Uh, in some cases, you might be able to use, let's say, a multimeter uh, with a connectivity setting and trace out the traces, look at the traces that lead up to those pins on the RF modulator, and maybe you can trace them back a little ways to somewhere else where that's a little easier to reach with a soldering iron, for example. Because I know on, on the, the machine that I was messing with, the, the video uh, input was kind of difficult to reach without melting plastic inadvertently <laughs> because soldering irons are hot. And the power lead, I think, was just a little hard to get to. I ended up uh, tapping into an, another place on the motherboard that was pretty close by. Again, check the continuity, make sure they connect, make sure you get the beat from your multimeter or whatever. 
but you, you can connect to different places that are as long as they're electrically the same place. Anyway, it really is. It's four wires. Uh, they do connect to the wires on the RF modulator. That's really all there is to it. <laughs> so, um, electrically speaking, okay. So, to complete out the kit, or to complete out the modification, some of the kits will come with the RCA connectors. If not, you'll need to collect those. Um, if your kit comes with just two RCA connectors, one for video and one for audio, then that's pretty easy. You take the audio out. Well, you connect the grounds uh, on both of them uh, to the, the outside. Uh, um, the black wire on the output from the from the little circuit board will connect to the, um, the, the chassis ground on, on both of the connectors. And then the video one will connect to the center port of the video connector, and the audio uh, wire connect to the audio port, uh, audio the center pin on the audio connector. Quite often you'll have three connectors, so the, you'll have a yellow one for video, and then a white and a red one for for audio. In that case, so um, you're you're gonna want to basically take and and connect the audio connector to the center post of both the um, red and the white one, and then you'll have sort of a it's not stereo, but it's it will kind of act like it. You'll get the same signal on both sides. Um, it's kind of good enough. So there's a big uh, on the back of the Coco one case. There's kind of a big flat area on the back that's uh, above the other ports. Um, just be careful. Try to align your holes correctly. Leave, leave the right spacing so that you can screw all the ports in. And uh, especially just drill three holes and and then mount them up. It's not a big deal. You're just going to have to do that on your own. <laughs> Good luck. Be careful. Uh, find the template if you can so that it help you get the alignment correct on your drilling. That's pretty much it. This electrically, it's pretty simple to hook up. Your mileage may vary on the video. Uh, I've been happy with every time I've done this sort of uh, modification, uh, either on a Coco or on, a, on an Atari or other video game system. But other people sometimes still complain. You get the... Um, you know the kind of the the video equivalent of the audio files that can tell you they hear so much difference between uh, <laughs> between cassettes and and uh, CDs or whatever, or <laughs> you know how cassettes are so much uh, more lifelike. And you know, it used to be people talk about that on vinyl. Sorry, I'm rambling a bit. Uh, if you are one of those audio files that thinks that cassettes and vinyl are so much better than CDs, uh, you know that's great. I don't care. My point being, this is a good way to get composite video or AV output, RCA, RCA uh, audio video output from your Coco. I think it's fine. I think it. Uh, every time I've seen it, it looked at least as good, if not much better, uh, than what the RF was doing, even with the shielded RF cables. Is it going to match up with uh, Coco VGA or, or whatever? Probably not. Um, if you're a stickler for, for for things, then you may want to go with a different option. But if you want um, a decent video output from your Coco One or TDP One Hundred for fifteen dollars and a little solder work, well, this is the best way I know to go. <laughs> and you don't have to build the circuit yourself; you just have to wire it up. I think that's pretty much it. Oh, and if you have any questions, if you're not sure which parts to ask. I'm sorry, which uh, parts to buy on eBay or whatever. <laughs> I'll try to put a couple of example links in the show notes, but otherwise uh, feel free to send us some feedback. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, Coco Fest is coming. I hope you're going to get yourself there. 
Be retro forever. All right, thanks. Let the Radio Shack TRS-80 put the world of color computing into your home. Instant loading program packs turn any color TV into an exciting game arcade. And there's more. The color computer is an educational aid, a home management tool, and up-to-the-minute electronic information service. The programmable, expandable TRS-80 color computer from $399 only at Radio Shack, the biggest name in little computers. Hi, this is Boise Pete. Welcome to the second episode of the OS9 Corner. In our very first segment last month, I introduced the concept of the module, an important organizational structure in OS9. This month, I'll explore a key module that is central to the operating system, the kernel. Conceptually, the kernel is at the heart of the OS9 operating system. It creates the infrastructure that provides basic system services, known as system calls, to all programs that run on the system. For you programmers out there, a system call is akin to a function. Programs temporarily pass control to a system call with a set of parameters. The system call performs some specified steps, then returns control to the program. System calls cover everything from managing the allocation and deallocation of memory to the creation and execution of processes. The kernel houses these system calls and exposes them to programs for their use. When we talk about the kernel under OS9 for the color computer, we're actually talking about two different modules. The primary module is called kern, spelled K-R-N. This module is found on the boot track of a Cocoa OS9 system disk, and it contains just enough system call information to get the system into a minimal state. The pre-Nitrous 9 name for this module was OS9P1, or OS9 kernel part 1. The second module is called kern P2, spelled K-R-N-P-2. The pre-Nitrous 9 name for this module was OS9P2, or OS9 kernel part 2. Kern P2 is found in the boot file of a Cocoa OS9 system disk and contains the rest of the documented system calls. The reason for this split module design on a color computer is due to the limitation of the size of the boot track, 4608 bytes. The entire kernel could not fit into that area along with the boot module. The same limitation applied to older OS9 systems with 4 or 8K ROMs. The kern module not only provides the basic set of system calls to bring up the operating system, but it also sets up the system memory to accommodate data structures such as the module directory, the memory allocation table, and others. In effect, kern gets the computer to a sane state, where the rest of the boot file can be loaded into memory and executed. Once loaded, kern passes control to kern P2, and that module installs its system calls. It, in turn, looks for and calls an optional module in memory named kern P3. This method of chaining modules allows for the operating system to be expanded quite easily. You may be wondering if the kernel also handles basic input and output services such as opening files and devices and performing read and write operations on them. In actuality, I.O. operations are handled by another system module called IOMAN. I'll talk more about that module in the next installment, but I'll leave you with this. IOMAN is responsible for managing a whole class of modules in OS9 called drivers, file managers, and device descriptors. These modules work together to define the data structures and support calls for all I.O. operations, 
in the operating system. That's the OS9 Corner for this episode. Thanks for listening. There's no place I'd rather be right now than right here with you, listening to the Coco Crew Podcast. Whoa! What do you want, mister? I'm looking for gold. Shoot, mister, we ain't got no gold around these here parts. But you can look all you want. <laughs> We got plenty of lead and tin, though. <laughs> Who are you? What you got there, stranger? It's the new JM Systems JFD Coco Disc Controller. It sets a new standard in performance and quality. Its built in digital phase lock loop data separator means no need for adjustments, ever. And the card contacts? Pure gold. <laughs> Best of all, the JFD Coco is plug compatible with the original Coco and the new Coco 2. How much, stranger? Just 139 bucks! Wait, wait, where can I get one? From JM Systems, Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> Imagine a different world. A world where Tandy Corporation has the upper hand. Where the Coco surpassed all competitors. And all you have to do is travel back in time without making a single mistake. Coco forever. definitely earn this office. Yes, you're too kind, and thank you. You want to grab some food before we head back and look at that alt-reality OS9 module? <laughs> it's only a 40 years past due, but yeah, sure. How does it feel? I'm still Episode 1, Spring 2018. Welcome back to Neil's Corner on the Coco Crew Podcast, episode, is it 34? Yeah, 34. I had to think about that for a second. Can't believe how many episodes we've done already. I hope all of you enjoyed my segment last month on BBS Reminiscing and the Wi-Fi Modem Talk. It actually inspired me so much that after I recorded my segment, I went looking for my old BBS backup discs I created just before taking the board down in 1997. I have now been in the progress for the last month recreating it, using a lot of my original menu screens and the same BBS software package, just an updated version of it. I know, I know, it's not Coco, but at least when I get it finished and online, you can use your Coco to log into it. Anyways, enough jibber-jabber about BBSing. On this month's segment, I'll be talking about Coco video games that need a real floppy drive setup, or Coco SDC, to run, versus games that don't care and will work with DriveWire or any disk-extended color basic drive number. And what I mean by drive number is hard drive setups that run on RS-DOS. But before I do, I just want to give credit to Mark Marlette over at Cloud9 for this topic idea. By the way, I've known Mark for a while now, and once in a while he'll send me videos on Coco-related projects and items he is working on. Well, all I have to say is, wow. He is currently working on a doozy right now. I can't reveal exactly what it is, as he wishes to keep this product a complete surprise. However, what I can say is I'm sure all of you will be very impressed. It really amazes me what kind of stuff Mark is pulling off over there at Cloud9. 
and not just with the stuff he's pulling off, but the top-notch production level as well. Alright, on with the segment. When I first got back into the cocoa scene, I did like most of you probably have. Started out sourcing cocos, disc controllers, monitors, etc. to build up a nice complete cocoa setup again. Then I learned how to make up real floppy disks using Coco emulators on old PCs with real 5.25 floppy drives installed in them, and by downloading Coco disk images I found on the internet. Later on, attending a few Coco Fests and buying new hardware being made for the Coco, such as Cloud9 Super IDE, and getting DriveWire set up, I discovered not all games and programs for that matter play nice with DriveWire or hard drive devices such as the Super IDE that use multiple drive numbers past a standard original floppy drive 0 and 1 setup. I quickly learned why they don't work. Here are a few reasons why this issue occurs. Basically any program that uses non-standard disk routines. Example, when a programmer writes their own code to handle the floppy drive access and not use a standard disk extended basic routines. This will usually break in drive wire or disk extended color basic hard drive setups because the code is looking for a real floppy drive disk controller to be present. Another time this issue will occur is on games and programs that use multiple disks. You'll get as far as loading the first disk, and once the game asks to insert disk 2, you're sunk, because you have no real way to eject the first disk and insert disk 2. Now this isn't exactly true for DriveWire, as DriveWire does let you eject and insert a new floppy disk image into the drive number of your choice. Therefore, if the game you're running uses standard disk routines and has multiple disks, you should be fine using DriveWire. However, with a hard drive setup, it will not work unless you are really lucky and the game will let you use Drive 1 for the second disk. And to save the best for last, is any programs that are copy protected will definitely not work with DriveWire or Disk Extended Color Basic hard drive setups, because these programs are actually looking for bad tracks or strange formats on a real floppy disk that was purposely put there from the game publishers. Now one exception to this is users of OS9 and Nitrous9. They are not affected by this because OS9 is an operating system and built to use hard drive setups and programs don't care what drive letter they are being run from. So if you mainly use your Cocoa with Nitrous9, you probably weren't even aware of this or simply don't care about it and it's not something you really had to worry about. So there's a plug for Nitrous9 and to all of you who use it. I see you smiling over there, Boise. However, as a Cocoa gamer, I wasn't so thrilled when I got back into the Cocoa to find this out. Don't get me wrong, Super IDE and DriveWire are fantastic products, and I use them both regularly, just not for the bulk of Coco Gaming. Anyways, going back to the first Coco Fest I attended, I remember meeting Steve Bjork and hearing a talk he performed there about creating a Coco disk controller that uses flash media to store Coco disk images on and completely emulate a real floppy drive controller. So as far as the Coco is concerned, it thinks it's loading from real floppy disks. Well, after leaving Coco Fest, I was hyped for this product, because it would solve the issue of having to use real floppy disks all the time. Well, unfortunately, time went on and nothing was ever mentioned of it again. I basically just forgot about it and moved on. But, then a few years later, someone by the name of Darren Atkinson revealed something he was working on called Coco STC. And this product was exactly what Steve was describing a few years earlier. The Coco STC is a true floppy drive controller emulator for your Coco. It will read pretty much any type of disk, whether it's heavily copy protected or not. It also has a button on it for programs that use multiple disks. Well, after hearing this announcement, I couldn't wait for this product to come out. Darren had given a beta test version of it to Boise, and I got to see it in action being shown off at Boise's booth at CocoFest. I remember Boise and I loading up games with heavy copy protection to see if it would work, and sure enough, it did. Well, now the Coco STC has pretty much become standard for Coco users. It's perfect for newcomers that don't want to get into the whole floppy drive thing or if space is limited. You don't need a huge table full of computer equipment. 
I still mess around with real floppy drives mainly because I like the nostalgia feel and sound from it. There's just something about hearing the drive head stepping. But I'm sure glad we have a disc controller emulator. It's also great for software archival purposes. Well, I won't take much more of your time, but for the newcomers or for those who don't know what games in particular will work with DriveWire or need a real floppy drive and or Coco SDC, here's a short list I compiled. Keep in mind this is by no means a complete list. Games that require a floppy drive or Coco SDC. Z89, Those Darn Marbles, The Contras, Wild West, Quest for Thelda, Warrior King, Marty's Nightmare. And here are some of the games that do not require a real floppy drive or Coco SDC. So meaning they will work fine with drive wire or any hard drive setup. Rupert Rhythm, Sockmaster's Donkey Kong Arcade Port, Glenn Hewlett's Pac-Man Arcade Port, Gate Crasher, Pac-Man, Popstar Pilot, or basically any smaller single file game that loads entirely into memory. Like most of all the older Coco 2 programs such as Donkey King, Time Bandit, Cashman, Cuber, etc. Those all work. Compiling this short list actually made me realize that most, if not all, of Nick Morentis' games work perfectly with DriveWire or a hard drive setup. Well, anyways, there you have it. If you don't already have a Coco STC or a DriveWire setup, you can decide what's best for you. I'd personally go for both, so you can have the full Coco experience and be able to run everything. Well, until next month, happy Coco Gaming. After these messages, we'll be right back. Well, it's that time again. We have reached the end of episode 34. Just a quick wrap up here. I'd like to thank our host, John Linville, for once again making it through all those news topics and providing another excellent tech segment. Thanks goes out to Mike Rowan for all the hard work editing this podcast and creating those cool commercial breaks you hear. Thanks also goes out to Boise Pete for being a full-time part of this podcast now and for giving us the new OS9 Corner. That's an excellent addition to this podcast. Also can't forget to thank everyone who participated in the roundtable discussion. Sorry I wasn't able to make it this time. Last but not least, a big thanks goes out to all of you who listen and support our show each month. Just as a reminder, we are less than a month away for Coco Fest. If you haven't booked your room, made travel plans, etc., now is the time to get on it. We're in the crunch time zone for getting projects and things done in time for the fest. Sorry, Mark. I know you're probably stressing over there, especially hearing this bit. We'll have episode 35 out just before the fest, so you can listen to us on your travel. Until next month, happy getting ready for the fest. The race is on. It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Go, go. Like there's no tomorrow. What is this crazy rock and roll music anyway? It's a blast from the past.